Hi everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well. It is time for our Wednesday evening fireside chat wherein we throw in the kindling of intellectual errors and come out with the pure ash of rational thought. That probably should be a less destructive metaphor in hindsight. Mike! All right. Up first is David. David wrote in and said, when is a good time to change someone's mind? We live in a society where I feel that most people don't want to argue with each other because both sides know they are not prepared enough or have enough time to convince the other person or all are in a too awkward place to argue. How could they? Both of them just want to hang out with their group of friends at a bowling hall or have a movie night, not spark a fueled debate where if things heat up. Too much will ruin the good time the group wanted to spend together. So how many people seem to be afraid of arguing, thinking that potentially losing a friend of a discussion of faith and political view is not worth it? Where I live, people are so deep into this idea of why can't we all be friends by never arguing with each other and respect our unquestioned opinions. Can you balance the coexistence and friendship with arguing and debate? That's from David. Welcome. Welcome, David. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing very well. So what kind of topics are we talking about here? Well, it's something that came up in my mind half a year ago when um, it's actually something I've noticed several times where <laughs> I'm supposed to put this mildly. Um... I'm sorry. I. <laughs> I don't know which show you think you're on, but oh, yeah, the idea yeah. that you need to put things mildly on this show <laughs> is something not you might required. want to cast it. I, <laughs> I, I am not one of your jumpy bowling friends. <laughs> Let's put it that way. All right, all right, all right. Um, I just think that having um, that so many people are uh, convinced that it's okay to think whatever you like, and uh, every, and no one is supposed to somehow um, think ill of you because of that. It's okay to be this way. It's, it's fine. And, but you believe in rabbits being the almighty gods. I mean, <laughs> it's completely irrational. Um, or stuff like that. It, it, just anything. Um, and the point being, whatever it is, that I want to have an impact on my surroundings as well. Because I'm inspired by you, Steph, and uh, I would like to have um, discussions and talk with my friends as well um, to see if you know to argue and such. But um, there, when I I just I just try to find the optimal way of um, dis discussing and trying to change someone's mind. But at least I have a discussion, and and so. But, you know, if I'm just going to write to someone, hey, you want to come over to me and talk about politics? <laughs> you know, that <laughs> you would imagine the response, right? Uh, I mean, and you wouldn't want to personally, if you wanted to ask out a guy for or, or someone for um, to go to the theaters, you wouldn't then suddenly try to sneak in some... Um, difficult or a uh, personal question uh, about maybe a feminism and start talking about that. Hey, we're watching theaters. Jeez, can, can we just have a good time, right? Um, why does this matter to you? Um, 
Well, it matters to me because it has an impact on our society. And I want to have an impact as well uh, on you. So that um, I hope you understand what I'm trying to get at. Oh, I I certainly certainly do. Um, I just wanted to make sure I understood where you were coming from before I yeah, yeah. let rip. Um, I have a few examples. Um, for example, um, about half a year ago, I went on a I went on a date and with this girl and um, at a restaurant. So after about half an hour in, and we were, you know eating our lunch, then she said, uh, then she said, oh. But that's, uh, I guess, just because I'm a bit leftist. And then it just something, something, you know, just hinted, something like triggered in my mind. So I just became immediately curious, just wanted to know more. Like, wait, how much, how much, fem how much leftist are you? And uh, what, what do you mean? Uh, you're, you're, you're like a big government, you're like a small government. Uh, what do you what do you mean with a bit leftist? I mean, uh, is it because you're, what she means you're, is <laughs> I like free stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but you don't really know that for sure uh, until you ask. Um, All right, because everyone has their own mind about things. Um, but what happened is that we became curious, but we know we know exactly where it was heading, and we were out. We were the point of this meeting was we were out on a date. We were supposed to get along, but we were on two sides, um, two different sides here, and we were immediately curious. And we know where we were heading. And if we were continuing to head towards that direction, then it would not end up in a as a good date. What? So, wait, wait, wait. Hang on, what do you mean it would not end up as a good date? A, a good a date is where, where you find out the truth. Well, you would also like uh, to have a good time, right? Uh, no, a nice time, but... no, 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 <laughs> no, no, not, not good time. Not good time. Find truth time. Because if, if you end up with <laughs> right. some woman who's a leftist, it means that she's very big on state power. It means that she thinks it's perfectly legitimate for women to get, or men, to get resources from the state, which means divorce. All right, well... As she comes from I a feminist tradition or a Marxist tradition or both, and it means that uh, she's going to have all of the crap that goes along with the general lefty feminist Marxist position, which is that males are disposable, men are pigs, and you're going to end up in a miserable right. marriage. You're going to get uh, your ass divorced, and you're going to have lawyers right, coming right. after you uh, with uh, crossbows filled with dildos. So, yeah, All right. no, that's a good day. Okay. A good day okay. is like, let me, I'll give you a sort of a counter thing, right? So yeah, years ago, um, I, uh, um, I engaged a lawyer to go over an employment uh, contract because I needed to figure some stuff uh, out about it. And uh, she was a very, um, a very smart and very attractive lawyer. And uh, we, uh, we had some good chemistry. And... Anyway, so she started telling me about how, you know, she, she took two weeks off in the summer to go out and, and help uh, leftists in Central America and this, that, and the other, right? And uh, I was like, oh, that's a shame <laughs> because that is an ideological divide my sperm dare not cross. 
that is like my sperm look at that egg like uh, Paris through the D-Day hailstorm of Saving Private Ryan led filled death uh, and uh, just didn't uh, not couldn't do it couldn't do it i mean okay. there's just no way okay but how about this i have another example and it's not about um dating or relation but uh more about friendship and coexistence so for example i live on the countryside in a very scarce po scarcely populated area you know there's not a whole lot of people here a great a great use so, of the word scarce and sparse together scarce i like that i remember scarce. that but go on um there's not a whole lot of people here, so you need to know how to get along. And there are a lot of great people here, you know, nice people, good personalities. Um, but suddenly, you know, they have these, um, <laughs> um, some, you know, just stupid ideas about things. Some of them do, or maybe or not even that, but, you know, things that I would like to talk about, but they have no interest in talking about it whatsoever. And especially, Sorry, sorry. Not. I have to dis I have to discord just a discord a statement from my head just to make sure I can continue listening. David, do you mind if I just do this? Go ahead. I bookmarked where you were. So there's an old saying that used to be a woman used to say it, but sometimes men used to say it, uh, which is lips that touch wine will never touch mine. Right. In other words, I'm not going to get involved with a guy who's a drinker. Right. And um, for me, it's lips that blow the state. I will never mate. <laughs> So I just wanted to get that off my mind. Now let's get back to your scarcely, scarcely populated uh, people who didn't want to talk about uh, anything deep or interesting. Mm, nice poetry right there. Um, so when it comes to like personal interest in, for example, uh, well, hobbies, sharing the same hobbies with people, you know, you want to, if you want to go paddling or fencing or so, you want to do it with people you share that interest with. But suddenly, you know, there is completely... Uh, a complete divide on other things that um i th look i think i get the picture i don't mean to cut you off but yeah, yeah. You, you, when you have stuff that's fun to do with people you want to do fun stuff with people but you are interested in having a positive in effect on the world and so you run into people's hostility towards anything deep right yes Right. Now, are they, uh, do they shy away from controversial topics because they're dumb or because they're cowards? There's really the only two options, right? I've had, um, I've had, um, like a group of friends, uh, over at my place and we've, you know, watched movie together. And then suddenly, as the one, uh, the one woman who is there, a uh, girlfriend, just one of our friends, said, uh, you know, it's a bit, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm feminist. And then, but there's another guy who is like, uh, has sympathy with, um, with nationalism and, um, and right winged, you know, he suddenly clicks, like, immediately curious and want to talk about this. But we're watching a horror movie, for Christ's sake. Um, so well, why would you why would you want to why would you want to merely watch a horror movie where you live a real life horror movie <laughs> yeah, by watching yeah, a right winger feminist go at it? <laughs> I was thinking the you same know, that's thing. that old internet meme of like, hey, there's not enough popcorn in the world for the length of this fight, right? Yeah. But what happened was that um they immediately 
uh, wanted to, it, both of them were really curious. You could see it on them. They you know, wanted to ask these uh, certain questions, but they know exactly where it was heading and they wanted just to try to draw back. Hey, hey, uh, okay, okay, okay. And then there were, you know, the others who neutrals, hey, let's not talk about this. Let's just come on. Let's just settle, move along, watch. But personally, okay, no, I, I, again, it, I, I get it. I mean, it's, I feel like you're telling me the same story over and over again. Are, are yeah, you trying yeah. to hypnotize me in some manner, David, that I'm not aware of? All right. I get it. So I get it. what's your input? Well, okay. So let me, let me ask you this. I mean, what if you just have fun friends and then friends with brains, right? And integrity. Like you, you can have friends, you just go on a bowling league and you shoot the shit and, you know, throw some balls and stuff, right? And then you can have friends who have passion, depth, meaning, curiosity, ethics, and, and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, what's wrong, right? What's wrong with divvying them up, right? Hmm. What um, Something that really got me thinking about this was one of the... Uh, ah, one... One video you had uh, about um, oh, half a year ago as well, where you talked about only having friends with those whom you can agree with in a deep level or so, and um, and those are the people you know the real friends. They, they, those are the people you should um, be with. Yeah, I, I don't like friendships where I have to hide who I am. Yeah, I mean that that's not a friendship, right? No. I mean, you just, you can't be honest and you're managing people and you're silencing yourself. You know, people, uh, you banned me from a message board. That's censorship. It's like, hey, you, you want to know censorship? Go talk to your friends. Yeah. And I mean, is this what you're engaged in? Is massive self-censorship? Let yeah, me not is. be who I am. Let me not be honest with you about what I'm thinking and feeling because it's going to upset you. Yeah. Let me self-erase. Let me self-slaughter my highest ideals. And let me take I, the best part of myself out back, shoot it in the head, and drive a truck over it so it doesn't upset you. And uh, you know, some of my friends are are you know having this on steroids, where they had to dumb themselves down. Um, oh, try to on be, steroids? Uh, uh, just trying to dumb themselves down, put it, you know, be co politically correct and, you know, just trying to be as friendly as possible, even though they d severely disagree with some people and how they, uh, what they do and such. And because, um, it just even in my region, I don't know if this is on other places as well on the, on the, it is everywhere community and it's a diverse community when it comes to beliefs and political views. And you bump into the same people over and over again. And if you want to uh, be together or, um, you know, talk about things, you know, it's not a, you, if you want to come, you want to find plenty of people that you agree with, you have to go a certain distance. Yeah. So you, you are embroiled in the fantasy that you can change people into thinkers, right? You, so you, your question was, how do you change people's minds? Well, first of all, you can't. Can, no button. There's no button. Yeah, that was what right, I was you hearing. But I had to. Minds. Yeah, because that's... if if they are open to your mere influence, they don't have minds to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. And so you you cannot. The only people whose minds you can change are people whose minds aren't worth changing. You know, they'll just go anyway. The wind blows, right? They'll just go with the flow, and you know, it doesn't take any effort to swim with the current, right? So 
Um, the only people whose minds are worth changing are the people who are capable of thinking. Now, if you have a common and agreed upon methodology for resolving disagreements, then no disagreements can break your friendship. Right. If you, I'll say this again, this is very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have a common and accepted methodology for resolving your disagreements, no disagreements can break your friendships or any of your relationships. Any of your relationships. In fact, disagreements will only make your friendship stronger. Right? There is no, there are no two scientists who both agree to follow the scientific method whose disagreements will make them not scientists anymore. Now, if one of them starts reading tea leaves or examining chicken entrails or, I don't know, phoning Oprah, then you have a problem because one of them's following the scientific method and the other one isn't. So if you have a commonly agreed upon methodology, your friendships cannot be harmed. It's, it's bulletproof. Now, hang on. So, so let me just, so, so the key thing is not to argue about politics. The key thing is to say, how do we argue? How do we have disagreements so that we're not shying away from this third rail called disagreement? How are we going to resolve disagreements in a way that is going to make us not afraid of disagreements? People shy away from disagreements because it's like a grenade thrown on the ground, right? Everybody runs away because nobody knows how to resolve any of this stuff. Or to put it in another way, they know how to resolve it, but they don't want to do it. Because everyone is going to say, who's got any brains at all, well, it has to be ra reason and evidence. It has to be how we resolve these disputes, right? Yeah. And, and anybody who says, no, it shouldn't be reason and evidence. It should be irrationality and faith that, that resolve all of these disputes. Well, then you're talking to a person who's openly crazy. Most people have this veneer of sanity. And then you, you dig down and, you know, you, you hit the tripwire of crazy and suddenly you, um, you lost your eyebrows. And so the key thing is, is to work on a common methodology. And so if you can say to people, what's interesting is that, you know, I've noticed that we all shy away from these dis debates. We all shy away from these disagreements. And why, why do people think that is? I think it's because we don't have a way of resolving these disagreements that, um, that makes sense, right? There's there's a, a way of resolving disagreements over who gets what, which is called price, right? If I have something and you want it, well, you can make me an offer. You can ask me to give it to you or whatever. But if I don't want to give it to you, you can make me an offer and we can resolve it. And price is the objective methodology for determining who gets uh, resources uh, in a bid for something. If uh, you and I put in bids for a house and you bid more, you get the house probably and all that. So, So right now, the government has become more and more powerful. And so the cliche of anarchy has been loosed upon the world. Uh, society has become increasingly brutal because now everybody runs to the government. And as a result, philosophy has withered, right? Philosophy is not something that's very necessary when you have the government ordering the shit out of people with a billion weapons. Just, you know, it'd be like Anthony Robinson going to give Awaken the Power Within lectures to people in a concentration camp you know motivation don't matter that much if you don't you're not in a state of freedom and how do you rationally resolve disputes doesn't really matter because for the past couple of generations we've just been running to the government and saying well i don't know how to 
convince people. And so I'm just going to run to the government and take this shortcut called people now have to do what I say. Right. As Joe Biden said about Obamacare. Hey, man, law, uh, stroke of the pen, law of the land. Pretty fucking cool. <laughs> well, it is if you don't mind a Mack truck backing over Socrates' grave over and over again. And um, so there is no common methodology because people have abandoned reason and evidence when it comes to the resolution of social disputes. And why wouldn't they? You just run to the government. You don't need to reason with people if you have thugs who will beat everyone up who disagrees with you. So just run to the government. So if you can get people interested in how a methodology works, like how, how do we resolve disputes, but you can't jump straight in, I think, and saying, well, let's just have debates about politics um, when nobody um, knows how you can possibly resolve these things. Does that make any sense? It does. And I have a question. How, or well, could you give maybe an example how how this would, um, how this, how, how you could apply this in reality? Could you give an example of how you can practically apply this uh, for uh, talk about uh, agree on a methodology with people sure i mean why don't you pretend to be a feminist hmm hello <laughs> yeah i mean i don't want to role play both sides i could but it's you know you're in the show too so why don't you pretend to be a feminist and i'll pretend to be say me <laughs> okay what i wake up it's my it's my morning mantra i stare in the mirror and say steph today it's really important to do a good job of pretending to be you anyway um, so you would say something like, I'm a feminist. And I would say, well, that's interesting. And it is. <laughs> and I would say, what does that mean? And you, what would you say? Well, it means that I hate men and I want more feminism. No, no, no. Give me what a feminist <laughs> would say, right? I mean, not, not what a feminist would it's honestly on, it, say, but what a feminist <laughs> would say. Oh, this world is unfair towards women and men are earning so much more money and there is rape everywhere in all cultures and we need more rights i mean women men if men are violent in the homes then they should never see their child uh bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. <laughs> have you ever uh, ridden the bus i mean the microaggressions are everywhere i mean i i'm getting weird at that that guy he spread his legs showed off his package it's like he was taunting me with i this I, I needed to. Oh yeah, the, oh yeah, the microaggre, microaggression. No, I get it. I mean, men have to deal with. Uh, yeah, men have to deal with war, but gosh, poor the poor women with their microaggressions. All right. Uh, okay, and I would say, well, those are you know, I get, I get where you're coming from. That's that's certainly an interesting perspective. Um, do you believe that the solution to the peaceful problems of women, right? So. Because if, if a woman is being violently aggressed against, she has the right of self-defense. She can put the man in jail for assault. So we already have solutions for those, like for violent situations. And, and those solutions are generally, um, at least in terms of the law, are equally available to men and women, right? Like if a woman comes and punches you up or whatever, right? So with regards to the aggression against women, we have laws against that. My question is, do you think that the problems that don't involve violence, right? Like, let's say that women are underpaid. That doesn't involve violence. Nobody's got a gun to their head, right? It's just they're underpaid. And of course, everyone is. Everybody wants to be paid a billion dollars a second. Do you think that the solution to the non-violence 
problems that women are facing should be dealt with peacefully or should we use government power to deal with those nonviolent problems? I've heard um, on this data, when I asked some of the questions um, that had that dealt with government, so like, hey, are you in support of a big government or a small government? So and then it's like, I, I don't know. Um, uh, I don't oh, know David. what that means. Oh, David. Yes. You know, we're supposed to be doing a role play, right? Oh, did you forget? <laughs> Damn it. Okay. Fine. Where was Do you want that? me to repeat my question? Yes. Okay. So if you want to change people's minds, David, the first thing you need to do is listen. Do you understand? Yeah. You can't change anyone's mind if you don't listen to them, right? Like we started off this conversation. I spent a good 10 minutes or so or more listening, right? And asking questions. Yeah. So if you have a problem with listening to people, then you're going to have a significant problem trying to change their minds, right? Yeah. It's... I don't mean to be a, a nag. I'm just trying to give you a tip, a word to the wise, right? Yeah, sure. Okay, so, so pretend to be the feminist, and I would say, for the nonviolent social issues that women are facing, do you think that they should be resolved through reason and debate and conversations and arguments, or should they... Should we bring the government and all of its power of, of arrest and imprisonment into the mix? Hmm. Well, says, I think we need to use a little violence against people who are armed and dangerous. And no, no. I'm sorry, Miss Feminist. I'm talking about the nonviolent aspects of women's complaints. The violent aspects of women's complaints are already dealt with through law. But do you think that the nonviolent aspects of women's complaints, like being underpaid, not getting enough maternity leave, maybe not getting enough um, into STEM fields, these are not people with guns, right? These are people who, you know, maybe underpay women as, as feminists and so on. Do you think that for the nonviolent aspects of women's complaints, should we resolve those differences with reason, argument, evidence, conversation, or should we bring in the power of the state and its laws and its prisons? Well, since people don't understand reasoning and facts, I think we should use the power of the government to make them understand. Wait. Use the power <laughs> of the government to make them understand? So your argument here would be um, to... Uh, Mike, did you want to <laughs> come in with what a feminist would say in your mind? Well, you see, Steph, the, the problems are systematic because of issues of long-term, long-term subservience of women and violence against women. It's a systematic effect, and we need to take corrective measures now to unroot and correct the systematic effect that has been present for decades and centuries. So we do no, need... No, that's great, and it's, it's great that you're using an S-word that's not structural, but in this case... Systemic. Don't get um, truncated with me, Steph. No, no. Okay, okay. So I'm trying to sort of ask a question, Mike Feminist. I'm trying to sort of ask a question, which is there are certain aspects of women's complaints that are violent, right? That, that the violence is being enacted against women. And I'm asking about the ones that are nonviolent. Like, let's say a woman feels underpaid. 
should that be dealt with through negotiation? Are women going to be able to just say, well, I'm going to make decisions or get better trained or ask for more money or shop around or whatever to get better paid? Or should we bring the power of the government in to force employers to pay women more? A feminist would probably say that being underpaid is a form of theft and therefore using the state to correct the theft would be moral and valid. Oh, okay. So if you don't get as much money as you want, the general principle would be, so if, if you want a certain amount of money and you don't get it, then that's stealing. Is that right? Not if there's systematic effects that show that women are being paid 73 cents on the dollar compared to men in similar positions. That's well, no, no, that, that, that is a principle. You're saying if you, know, if you don't get enough money, if you don't get enough money or if you don't get the money that you want, the difference between what you want and what you get is theft. Because men would love to get paid more, obviously, right? Everybody would love to get paid more. So if, if, I, if I think that my house is worth a million dollars, but people only offer me $750,000, they've stolen a quarter million dollars from me. Is that right? It's tough with the house analogy, but if people in my similar field are getting more money than I am, and I can show that other women alongside me are getting paid less than these men, it's systematic discrimination because of gender. But how do you know that? Hang on, hang on. So what, but I would say to the feminist, well, but how, how do you know that? You're jumping to a, collusion, to a conclusion that it's systematic bias based upon gender or sexism, but how do you know that? I mean, the mere fact that one group gets paid less than another group is not proof of discrimination. Oh, that's, that's true. But when you look across the board uh, and look at the groups in large quantities and people in similar positions, if there's less earnings, you can look at that and say it has to do with gender because that's the commonality. Well, is that the commonality? In other words, are we saying that one gender and another gender are both making the exact same life decisions, working the exact same hours, having the exact same availability to their employers in the same fields. Well, I may, right? I may is, want to is, have is, kids, is that but that where... shouldn't be counted against me. I'm sorry? I may want to have kids, but that shouldn't be counted against me. I work just Why as not? hard as, I work just as hard as the men. No, statistically, that's not true. Statistically, mothers work much less than non-mothers, which is why mothers get paid less than non-mothers. You win. No. <laughs> hmm. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the point is that the, the asking whether people want to use the power of the state to deal with non-violent situations, like I don't agree that you should use the power of the state even to deal with violent situations because... You have to pay for that through taxation, which is the yeah. initiation of force and all that, right? But um, getting people to understand that when they bring the government in, they're bringing force into the situation. They're bringing the initiation of violence into a situation. And if a woman is going to say, yes, men who pay women less than what the women want should go to jail, well, you have to extract that as a principle, right? And, and because people will always try and say, well, it's women this or men this or blacks or Hispanics or whites or whatever. They'll try and say whatever the pre prejudice is for that particular group, pro, pro or, or con. But try to extract the principle, David, from what they're saying. Because if people can't think in terms of principles, they can't think.
They're just manipulating prejudice in the case of like, well, these poor women are getting paid too little, bloody, bloody, blah, right? And, um, you know, I've, I've been a manager of both moms and single people. It's not the same. And I don't blame the moms. I think it's great. They got a 501. Got to get out of here. Got to get to the daycare and all that. I mean, I'm a dad. How many books have I written in the last six years, right? Uh, it's just the way it is. You can't be as committed a worker and a great parent at the same time. You can't be. Can't be. Because, you know, fixed amount of time in the day. But if you can get people to understand that asking people to say no government to deal with violent crime, that's that's tough. And that takes a lot of conversation. That there's a, That's like a huge one of the last barriers. That and the goddamn roads. But that's one of the last barriers to go down. But having people say, look, there's a situation I don't like. Right? There's a situation I don't like. And somehow, like on public transit, I mean, okay, so men might spread their legs a little on the bus. Okay, yeah. And women will often put their shopping bags there too. And and how is it a microaggression for a man to spread his legs a little bit on the bus? And by the way, balls need air. They do. You know, they, they need some room. I mean, if you haven't had you know, this big bag full of squirrels stuck between your legs for your entire life, then yes, it's going to be a little confusing. Uh, you know, why do men adjust themselves? Because it's uncomfortable. Because, you know, you sit down and suddenly one of your, uh, yeah. you know, one of your marbles gets stuck under an ass cheek and it's like, oh, I just had a tree fall on my genitals. I'm afraid I'm going to need to move. And it's like, sorry, we've, you know, testicle management is one of the challenging aspects of male existence. It's why men are so good at basketball, because it's what we do. It's why we're so good at playing uh, snooker. Uh, and uh, it is just what we have to do. And, uh, you know, sorry that we have to spread our legs sometimes, because otherwise, if we cross our legs, um, our voice goes up to John Anderson Heights, and, uh, you know, we interfere with our ability to continue the human race. But why is it uh, that um, a man spreading his legs a little bit on the bus is a microaggression, but a woman wearing so much perfume that your eyeballs are slowly draining down your face in in tears of of <laughs> scent based uh reactive uh, allergic reaction is um is not a microaggression i mean the amount of of makeup that some women put on uh is just uh, it's horrendous you know it's like they just emerged from Paris Hilton's purse. Uh, and uh, that somehow is not a, uh, a microaggression. Uh, but anyway, I mean, that's neither here nor there. But trying to get people to understand that there are things that are violence-based and that, you know, we need a, a very strong response to that. And, you know, the way that the government works with police and so on is has always been a, a way that, that we deal with these things as a species in general, for the most part. Having people to understand that there are complaints that involve violence and there are complaints that involve preference. So um, having people understand, like a feminist to say, I want guys thrown in jail who don't pay women what I think women are worth. Well, uh, that's that's talking about the initiation of force. And uh, if, if people want to use force to resolve disputes, don't pretend that they're not using force okay right and so so don't have debates with people who say the solution is a government law because they're not interested in debating they're interested in getting your agreement with their use of violence right so if people say well we should solve the problem of poverty 
with welfare, do you agree? And I'm like, well, what does agreement have to do with it? You want to use force. You know, it's like, I, I want to rape you. Do you agree? Like, don't ask me for my agreement. Because if you're saying rape, then don't pretend, don't, don't ask me to sanction your use of violence by my agreement. If I agree, it's not rape. And if I don't agree, it's not going to stop you. Right. Yeah. So um, the, the important thing is to get people to recognize when they are, when they want government to do something that's not deal with immediate force issues, then people need to uh, understand that. As I've talked about for many years, they need to see the gun in the room. The gun of the room is the power of the state. Yeah. And if there isn't already a gun in the room, like they're talking about rape, theft, assault, and murder, then they're the ones bringing the gun in the room. They're the ones pointing guns at people. Now, there are two types of people in the world, and, and one, when you point out that, you know, let's say a woman says, well, we need laws, uh, equal pay for equal work, and those laws have been around in America since the 60s. And if they say, you know, we got to force employers to pay women what, what I want them to pay women, or we have to force uh, people to admit women into STEM fields or whatever. And then you point out that they're initiating the use of force. They're advocating people get thrown in jail for not giving them what they think people deserve. And some people will say, oh, God, that's horrible. I can't believe I never thought of it that way. And they'll immediately back down from that position because they're decent human beings who have a conscience. And then there's most people who just double down and say, yeah, too bad. Employers aren't paying what, what I think women are worth, so they should go to jail. Right. And those people I would not attempt to remotely cover up the crimes that they are advocating. Like, I'm not going to pretend to debate with people whose answer is a gun. Right? I mean, I'll talk about welfare with people, but, you know, and, and give them the facts. But if they're still like, well, you know, what welfare, we got to have it. And it's like, well, then you're not interested in a civilized discussion. You just want to use uh, violence okay. and uh yeah well, you're not because you're not bothered by the use of violence you're seriously emotionally disturbed sorry go ahead yeah um i think we're um, i feel that we drifted a little away from the my original thoughts and question and it's that um i want to have an impact on the people around me and there are people who are emotionally attached to their beliefs without really any reasoning and so and what I wonder is that, is it worth discussing and arguing with them? Is it, can you change their mind about something that okay, they're emotionally Mark. attached to? Uh, David, how did we drift away from your topic? Um, well, this... I'm open that we um, did. I just, I don't understand how we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've been pretty much talking about whether you can change people's minds and how to do it. Sorry, go ahead. Because this isn't only about the state, it's also about also perhaps even religious views and uh, that hasn't, hasn't really necessarily Wait, to do anything with the state. Is your issue that I didn't deal with every conceivable argument that you might have and that's why we haven't dealt with your topic? I gave you an example. I didn't say you could only talk about the state. I gave you this particular example, right? Okay. So is, is okay. your issue that I didn't deal with every conceivable argument you might have with people? Uh, I, I wanted to talk a little about 
the religious uh, views as well, and not just the pol political side. Those are the two things I originally wanted to cover. But uh, yeah, I should have mentioned uh, that. Well, hang on. Well. So did we drift from your topic because we only did half your topic? Hmm. Um, okay, no. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I want to provide a good service in these calls. And I certainly don't want to hijack your questions for any kind of agenda that I have. And I said that you have to get people to agree on a methodology, right? And so yeah. when we started talking with the pseudo-feminist, right, we were trying to figure out here's a methodology. And the methodology should not be that we use force to resolve disputes that aren't based, that aren't violence-based, but we use reason and evidence, right? So okay. I was sort of giving an example of how to extract a principle uh, from that. And... Mm. Um, yeah. I'm not sure how that is drifting from your okay, question. Okay, well, poor, poor use of words, my, uh, excuse me. Uh, well, so is it so? Um, is it worth discussing and trying to uh, change someone, someone who's emotionally attached to something? Um, that is something that is potentially um, uh, nonsensical or. Uh, Maybe Mike, you think... I, I, okay, you drive me a little crazy here. What, okay, I feel like I've not been saying anything or you've had the mute on or something. Okay, so you're asking me, is it possible to change people's minds who don't use reason and don't listen to evidence? Hmm. And what, what have I said about three times about that? No. So why are you asking me the question? Like, I mean, and, and I'm annoyed. That doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. I'm just telling you like I'm annoyed. But I, I need to sort of understand yeah. why that there's something that's going on for you emotionally that is making you passive aggressive, pushback, not listening, provocative. There's something that's happening emotionally with you that I'd rather talk about than pretending we're talking about the surface stuff. So when I give you these sort of responses, what what happens to you emotionally? Well, I'm really nervous. But did you become and... more nervous during the course of the conversation? Mm, it was fairly constant, I think. Um, because um, it has to do with... Um, I, it has to do with um, people that I consider, you know, uh, fair, you know, not not the closest friends that I can share everything with, but you know, good friends. And it's just that some of them are so uh, even uh, so in inconsistent in uh, some respects that I feel like, well. I would like to maybe uh, talk about it to maybe help you out. And I think that would maybe improve uh, your life on a maybe deeper level, but um, I don't, I'm not, I'm not really getting to that stage. And I wonder how, how may, maybe able to, what's the best way to get to that stage?
So are we back at the beginning of her call now? I asked you about your emotions and you've given me this uh, abstract thing, right? I'll step in because you're not able to connect at this level yet. So, so David, people pretend to be confused when they don't like the answer. People pretend not to listen when they don't get what they want. So what I'm saying is causing anxiety in you, which you don't want to acknowledge. And as a result, you are upset with me and you're not getting the answers that you want. And what that means is that the answers that I'm giving you, you feel are going to provoke significant conflict with your friends and you don't like that. You want to try and find a way to have deep and meaningful conversations about things that matter in the world without upsetting irrational people. Yes. So I'm giving you clear answers, develop a methodology, work on, on uh, principles and so on. And you're fogging out because you don't like where that leads, right? Um, I was just hoping that maybe there was more to it. What but do you mean more to isn't. it? Oh. More to what? Um, maybe... Nah. Uh, you know, j just... Um, uh, a really, uh, really clever. Uh, well, what you did answer, what you did give me was uh, pretty clever, and I guess that's the best way of doing it. Or you're we fidgeting think again. Of at least. You don't have to do any of this. You no. don't. Right? You don't have to bring any rationality to irrational people. It's not a law of physics. You don't have to lift a finger. You will end up being a parasite on the work of people like myself. And this is not directed at you, David, but, but at your friends. Do you mind if I just give a short little thing about that? Go ahead. Right. So all these people, all you people out there who are like, uh, ooh, I don't know, I get kind of uncomfortable when we start talking about things that are important. I get kind of uncomfortable when the topic of religion or politics or philosophy or virtue or truth or anything, I get, I get uncomfortable. I, I, I want to go bowling. It's inappropriate. I don't like it. It's improper. It makes me feel bad. It makes me feel anxious. I don't like it. All those people, let me tell you what you are. What you are, are parasites. You are parasites because a lot of people do a lot of hard work to try and make a free world. A lot of people sacrificed and made, did a lot of hard work and took on a great deal of danger, ostracism, personal discomfort, legal risks, you name it, to get you things like freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom from slavery and freedom from war to some degree. And a lot of people really worked very hard to make your life so great. Was ending slavery comfortable? No. Was ending the aristocracy comfortable? No, it was not. It wasn't. And so a lot of people go through a lot of discomfort to make the world a better place. And all the people who were on the receiving ends of those hard-won gifts, 
Nobody's saying you have to do exactly the same thing. Nobody's saying you got to be a martyr and you got to go get a thousand lashes because you blogged about agnosticism in Saudi Arabia. Nobody's asking you for that. Just a little bit. Just a little bit of, yeah, you know, I stand for freedom of speech. Just a little bit of like, yeah, you know, I think that uh, the free market shouldn't have a whole bunch of guns pointed at it to make it fair because some people don't get the money they want. You don't get to rob a store because you didn't get paid enough and you don't get to point guns at big. Just a little bit. Nobody's saying that you got to go and speak the truth to the medieval pope and get locked up like Galileo or get set on fire like about 8 billion scientists in the Middle Ages. No, nobody's saying you've got to do all that. Just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit will help a huge amount. But no, people don't want to do that. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. So everyone else has got to do all this fucking work to clear the land for these people. You know, guys go in and men and women go in and hack down these trees and brave these bears and clear the land for people. And they're like, oh, this is great. Look at all this clear land. I'm going to build a bouncy castle of fun. I'm going to, oh, look, a natural swimming pool. I'm going to swim. This is great. And then some of the men come back from clearing out the next section of land. Not women's rights, not slaves' rights. Now we're doing children's rights. They're coming out, coming back, sweat, and, and, and bare claw marks on your chest in those really great Wolverine style, always in this attractive pectoral style, right? And you know, sweaty and bug-bitten and snake-bitten to come back from clearing the next, the next area for human beings to go and inhabit. And the frontiers men and women are out there clearing it out, making it clear, and come back and say, whoa, this place kind of run into seed a little here. Like, would you guys mind some weeding? You just do a little weeding. Nobody's saying you don't have to come out here where the bears are. You don't have to, like, bring down fucking mountain lions with your bare teeth. Like, we get it. That's not for you. Just maybe a little bit of weeding. You know, things are kind of going to seed around here. I'm glad. It's great you got the bouncy castle. It's great you got the swimming pool. I'd like to swim too, but busy clearing the next section of human ethical landscape for you people to inhabit. Just do some fucking weeding. Would you mind? And people are all like, I don't know. You know, weeding, first of all, I just did my nails and like weeding, I, I could totally, I had, hasn't happened yet. I can totally see getting like a split nail from the weeding. And you know, the other thing too, like I did a little makeup and weeding, it's like hot out and I don't want to sweat because I get these like rivulets. They're totally uncomfortable. And what if it goes and bleeds down into my into my top. I mean, this is silk. You cannot get that out of silk. I don't want to get raccoon eyes, you know, like I'm Annie Lennox singing Queen songs. I don't want to do that because it's weird and gross looking. So, you know, if you could, like, after you clear the next hundred acres of, like, sequoias and poison ivy and snakes and stuff, like, if you could just come back and take care of those weeds, we'll be over here under these parasols. And listen, darling, if you don't mind, would you also be a deer? I'd also like a mint julep. So after you go take down the bears and rip up the next hundred acres of trees by the roots uh, and, and make it habitable for people like us, if you could come back here, 
do a little weeding. Also, I think there might be something that's dead in the pool. <laughs> I don't, I'm not touching that. My God, I don't have enough sanitizer in the world to clean that off my fingers. If you could clean out the pool, do some weeding, bring me a mint julep, okay? That would be special. Thanks, doll. Right? This is what people are like. Just do some fucking weeding. The majority of the work has been done. Just do some weeding. Just beat back some of the crazy, politically correct, idiot, nonsense jerkwads. Just keep them, keep them off. Keep the weeds off. Major work has been done. There's no aristocracy. Uh, there's no slavery. You know, women have been emancipated. The majority of the work has been done. You know, just push back at the annoying gnats of political correctness. Yeah, how about that? Push back on a government program or two. Sow a few seeds of doubt. Just some weeding. And they won't. Because it's uncomfortable. You know what's uncomfortable is going off into the wilderness armed with only a toothpick and trying to take down the grizzly of the state. And when I say toothpick, I mean microphone. <laughs> and this idea that, oh, you know, I don't want to talk about these things because it makes me uncomfortable. I, I don't want to. Like, I don't want to look into maybe why some police officer shot someone because, you know, I might get a counter narrative that makes me uncomfortable. I mean, I don't like it's like, no, no, just do. We're not asking you to sacrifice yourself. We're not asking you to make this your life's mission. We're just saying do some weeding while we're off clearing off the next section of land for human beings to expand into called child rights. You know, sexism, great. Racism, great. Understood, opposed. Childism, prejudice against children, seeing children as non-humans. We're working on that. But we can't work on everything. We can't go and clear the next hundred acres of the grizzlies and the bears and the cougars and the lions. And we can't do that and weed and pick the dead shit out of the swimming pool and bring you a goddamn mint julep. Can't do it all. So get off your fucking asses and go do some weeding while we clear off the next thing. People won't do it. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> People might say bad things about me <laughs> with a bunch of parasites. And I think the moral pioneers of humanity get a little fucking tired of carrying these parasites. Do some work. Help out the species. Pay a little forward. Contribute a little bit. Put down your nail files. Put down your Xbox controllers. Contribute something to the progress of the species. I get it. You're not a warrior. Great. That doesn't mean you have to be a fucking dish rag. Just a little bit. Couple of Facebook posts. You know, spread a little FDR. Spread a little whatever it is that, that gets people thinking. Spread the opposite of FDR. I don't care. Do something to help the species out a little bit. Don't just hang on the backs of everyone else's labor and say, well, I don't like to talk about these things. They're controversial. While enjoying the fact that you have some economic, social, and political liberties because other people were willing to talk about things that were uncomfortable and do a shitload of uncomfortable things to give you some freedom. And what do you do with that freedom? Do you at least thank the people? Do you support the people? Do you donate to the people doing that? Do you get behind them? Do you defend them? Do you advocate for them? Nope. A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't want to do anything that's uncomfortable. Well, if everyone was like you, we'd still be in caves, having bears sit and fart on our asses half the winter. So, 
if you want to help them out of being parasites so that they can contribute to human freedom rather than just consume human freedom, just eat it up. People didn't fucking die and get burned at the stake and get thrown in jail so that they could go bowling. The best among the species didn't work and sweat and sacrifice so that they could not have to grope too far to get their Wii controller when it falls under the couch. Human beings of unbelievable intelligence, commitment, virtue, and integrity did not sacrifice their lives so that everyone down the road could let tyranny creep back because they don't want to be uncomfortable. That is lazy, that is entitled, that is ungrateful, that is selfish, that is short-sighted. And that takes the greatest gifts of history and squanders them for the sake of, oh, well, I don't want people to frown at me. Well, the people who gave us these freedoms had to deal with a lot more than internet trolls and social frowns. And I don't know what has happened to the spine of the species. You know, the old saying that a civilization rises in hobnail boots and falls on silk slippers. But I'm telling you this. There is not, there are not enough strong, stern, and moral souls in the world currently to save humanity from the drift towards fascism that is occurring out of the inertia, laziness, selfishness, and desire for comfort alone that characterizes the vast majority of the species. Why do we have bullies in society? Why do we have people who scream sexism and racism? Why do we have bullies in our society? Why do we have the death of reason in our society? Why is it just a matter of screaming at people and hurling invective at people and lying about people and slandering people? Why, why is it? Why is it that we have bullies in society? Because bullies are the demons created by the vacuum of courage, by the absence of courage. The ab nature abhors a vacuum, nature abhors cowardice. When a culture becomes cowardly, it summons the bullies. The bullies are here because we want them here, because we'd rather be bullied than stand up for ourselves. We'd rather be screamed at than speak words of reason in a calm and gentle voice or a loud voice. And so all of these people who are afraid of conflict and afraid of upsetting people and afraid of getting frowns and afraid of being disapproved of, well, the bullies smell that fear, and that, that is food for the bullies. That feeds and strengthens the bullies. And the bullies will grow, and the bullies will grow, and the bullies will grow, and the bullies will yell and scream and get more powerful until people get that it's easier and better to be uncomfortable now than it is to be enslaved later. Easier to go to the dentist now than have your teeth come out one by one, Angela's Ashes style, later on. It's easier to do some sit-ups now than get diabetes later. And it's easier to have courage and talk about things that are uncomfortable now than it is to be enslaved down the road. Because the bullies ain't going to stop. 
that's what they do. That's how they roll. That's how they roll like a snowball coming down the side of a snowy hill, getting bigger and bigger and starting with one flake and ending up something that can level a whole town. And so, yeah, David, you got some friends who uh, find it uncomfortable to talk about important things. And what they are is parasites feeding off the remnants of freedom fought for, fought for by far better people. And I'm sorry if they're uncomfortable, but they sure as hell are enjoying the fruits of the significantly greater discomfort of those who fought for freedom in the past and those who are fighting for freedom now. They love all those freedoms, but they won't contribute one goddamn thing to them. In fact, they stand in the way of every conversation that might lay bare iniquity and immorality and clear any possible path to a freer future. They're in the way. And they're parasites. And we cannot let them stop us. Wow. Wow. Great speech. I need... uh... Make them uncomfortable. Make them uncomfortable. Or don't. Right? I mean, again, nobody has to do a goddamn thing, but at least recognize the consequences of not doing anything. The consequences of avoiding deep issues is people say, the bullies are all, all they do is they sniff, they're like sharks with blood in the water. They sniff for that which you want to avoid. Oh, do you want to want to avoid something? Great. That's the button I can push to get you to do what I want. What are you afraid of? What do you, what do you don't, what do you, what do you most don't want to have happen in your life. Well, what do you, what, what is it? Oh, is it discomfort? Is it disapproval? Is it, oh, okay, great. Fantastic. That's how I'm going to control you. You know, Andrew Breitbart used to say, you walk towards the fire. You don't walk away from the fire. It's coming either way. You walk towards it. If the whole world's going to burn. There's nowhere to run. You've got to walk towards the fire with your house. And every time you run away, the bullies get stronger. Every time you avoid a topic, the bullies get stronger. Every time you back down, you... Right, it's the old quote that Churchill had about appeasement. Appeasement is the hope that the crocodile is going to eat you last. The bullies, the power hungry, the monstrous within human society, they will not stop. They will never be full. They will never have enough power. They will never have enough control. They will never be satisfied. Ever, ever, ever. They can encase you in concrete and have it harden around your body. You'll still have too much motion for them because you might be able to breathe. And they will hate your last dying heartbeats as being outside of their control. The monsters, the sociopaths, the control freaks will never stop. They will never stop. Stalin did not wake up one morning and saying, well, I think I've had about enough. Let's liberalize these fuckers. Let's have a free market. Let's, you know, none of that shit happened. People were all excited when Khrushchev decided to speak the truth about Stalin. But all he was doing was burying the previous mafia boss and reducing allegiance to Stalin so that he could have more allegiance for himself. He still said to the West, I will bury you, banging his shoe at the UN and doing all sorts of crazy shit. Brezhnev. Was he big on liberalization? No. Nothing happened until social collapse. They will not stop. This is what people don't understand. Or maybe they do deep down. It's really always hard to tell. They will not stop. And if they can get us to avoid speaking of essential, important 
philosophical issues, moral issues, issues of reality, issues of integrity, issues of courage. If they can get us to stop talking about these things with each other because there's disapproval in the air, we're doomed as a species. We might as well have them clap on the manacles now and hang us from the walls because we're done. We are fucking done. We are fucking done. If disapproval is enough, if, if social awkwardness is enough to have us shy away from essential topics that are the ultimate final defense against tyranny, we're done. We are completely done. The, the, the short multi-couple of century experiment of Western freedoms, of, of a free market, of freedom of speech, of freedom of association, if, if we are now uncomfortable and won't do anything to defend that or talk about it or push back at the encroaching waves of, of tyrannical absolutism, we're done. That whole experiment is going to pass. It's done. And I, if there was an afterlife, all the people who literally, literally gave their lives for the cause of human liberty, people who fought with words, which is sometimes even harder than fighting with weapons, People who were ostracized, people who were slandered, people who were attacked, people who were lied about, people whose reputations were smashed, people who were uh, harassed, people who were thrown in jail, people who were sent to war. All of those people have given us this unbelievable gift. And it's like a father dies handing a gold bar to his son, who then goes and loses it in a crap game. And the father says, after death, well, that was pretty fucking pointless, wasn't it? I gave my gold to an idiot. And the people who bought us these freedoms, I'm conscious of them. You know, there's that, one of the first videos ever made was Bohemian Rhapsody, and they've got every dial of special effects, they crank it up, and there's one where they just, they mirror, right? The little, like when you stand in front of two opposing mirrors, it just flows away. And I see all these people behind me who suffered enormously. And my ancestor, William Molyneux, who was best friends with John Locke, the philosopher, they feared imprisonment. Speaking about mere economic liberties and political liberties too. They had to hide. They, they were terrorized, terrified. That's the suffering that has given us the freedoms that we have. And what do you think of this army of heroes that stands in the giant vestibule of a noble history behind us? What do you think when they look upon this landscape? They look upon this landscape of liberty that they fought and bled and died and killed and wrote and feared to give us the gold that they bestowed upon us, that they suffered so much to bring to the surface and, and hand out to humanity. What do you think they think when they look upon the landscape of humanity at the moment and see what is happening to the freedoms, the escalating power and size of the state, the rise of the spectral army of bullies and slanderers that has arisen since the 1960s, who now dominate and terrorize the landscape. What do you think? What do they think of their suffering? 
because they did not live to see the freedom that they wished to bestow upon others. And the freedom and the gifts with which they gave humanity have been so astoundingly prodigious. I mean, everything that we're talking about, everything that we live, everything that we breathe, this this very technology that we use to communicate comes out of the free market, comes out of the pushback against aristocratic ownership and, and state control, state power, central planning, mercantilism. All of it was pushed really hard back by historical heroes of great moral courage and import. And now, and now what have we done? What have we done with the gifts that they have given us? And those of us who see and those of us who understand and those of us who get it are saying we got this great gift from the past. We were lucky to get it. Because 99.9% of humanity didn't get it in the past and doesn't even get it in the present. We got this unbelievably great gift and all it needed was some weeding. It did not need to be fought all over again. It just needed some weeding. It just needed pushback against the Marxists and the socialists and the warmongers and the Democrats and the Republicans. It just needed pushback against the women who wed the state and divorced sanity. It just needed some pushback, and if it had happened early, and if it had happened hard, it would never have flourished. We would not be living in this world where everyone is scurrying from all the bullies and the screamers and the slanderers and the liars. But now it's going to be much harder, and it's going to keep getting harder, and it's going to keep getting harder until we either win or we lose in an end-time brinksmanship. Could have been solved early and relatively easily. Like, you know, when Hitler took uh, Alsace-Lorraine, as Hitler himself said, one French army had, had come in, it would all have been over. No war, no 40 million dead. Done. No atom bombs. But they, ooh, I don't know, that makes me uncomfortable. <sighs> so here you go. Here's Alsace-Lorraine. There's the Rhineland, there's Austria, there's Czechoslovakia. Ah, oh, Poland, okay, that's too much. We can't do anything about it now, but here's war. <laughs> and this idea that it's uncomfortable now, so we'll wait. I don't know, what is that? What is that, what is that all about? It's just, just hoping your mortal enemy has a heart attack? I mean, it's not going to work. It's discomfort now or disaster later. There are no other choices. There are no other choices. It's discomfort now or disaster later. And I was committed to this before I had a child. Now that I have a child, I have to think a lot further in the future as well as being influenced by everything that came before because I'm going to deliver as best as I can. I am going to fucking deliver a free world to my daughter. The fact that I also have to deliver it to the child of these parasites who choose stupid comfort over even mild, the mild, mildly strenuous exercise of a tiny bit of moral courage. I am somewhat regretful that I have to deliver moral freedom as best I can and political and economic freedom to the children of the parasites as well as to my own child. But there's simply no way around it because... <laughs> Numbers, because math. And, I mean, if you look at uh, Greece, now, 
Well, they could have solved the problems early. They could have solved the problems 20 years ago and have an economy stronger than Germany at the moment. But they didn't because it's uncomfortable, you see. It's a little uncomfortable for politicians to go in front of the people and say, Hello, math! Calling the last remnants of sanity in the population. Do you remember the math you did? That's part of reality too. And you've been living beyond your means. You voted for all this free stuff. You surrendered your freedoms in return for bribes. The bribes have run out and your freedoms are gone. I hate to tell you this. It's your own fucking fault. It's your own fault. I mean, Greece of all places, reason, democracy, freedom, remember all that shit? You kind of left that in the rear view, didn't you? Just for a little bit. Because, boy, wasn't it great to see all the confetti on those games in Athens, the Olympics? That was cool. Didn't you feel proud? Well, now you got to pay for your pride, and it's not going to be cheap. Old people, welcome to the delicious land of cat food. That's what you pay because when you ask the government to treat you like a pet, you end up eating like a pet. I can't change that for you because it's not the fault of the young who didn't even have a vote when you put all these crazy programs into place. Not their fault. You got to pay. Sorry, you got to double up. You got to. There's no money left. <laughs> They could have done this and it would have avoided all of this cat food scenario. It would have, you know, a little pain then would have met a whole lot better life now. But no, you see, they didn't want to be uncomfortable. Any politician who might dare tell the parasitic, mindless, zombie-headed masses any kind of rational truth that two seconds thought would teach them without them even having to pull out a calculator or take off their fucking shoes to count their toes. Any politician who gives any kind of reality to the masses, they recoil. Oh, my God. He told us a scrap of truth. Oh, hold me. I need a hug room with puppy bear videos and a beanbag. Ah, no, what did they do? They elected a socialist to deal with overspending. Oh, my God. I have too much cocaine. Pablo Escobar will keep it for me. That's going to be great. <laughs> God almighty. No, they just elected someone else who's going to lie to them and tell them, don't worry, we'll work out a deal. And now <laughs> they have to go to the IMF and they say, oh, we can't possibly pay you the money that we owe you unless you lend us some, <laughs> some money. And people are saying this extend and pretend nonsense with a straight face because they didn't want to do Anything that was uncomfortable. No one, nobody wanted to say to the old people, I'm sorry, you, you, you took out more than you paid in. And math. Remember how you told us when we were kids to do our math homework? It might have been helpful if you'd done a little bit yourself. Because you're taking out $4 in benefits for every dollar you pretend to pay in taxes. Where did you think that was going to end up? Because math. You don't get to fart on an abacus and turn it into infinity. doesn't work. But no, nobody wanted to have those uncomfortable conversations. So now you got 26, 27% youth unemployment. 26, 27% unemployment as a whole, 50% youth unemployment. The old people are living on 
six, seven hundred euros a month and their kids are living with them because they can't get any jobs. Ten percent of the Greek economy is um, going to pensions. Greeks retire in their 50s because, you know, it's sunny. I mean, what's the point of working when it's nice out? Ah, those Germans could work because it's snowy. And uh, yeah, so you either learn from reason or you get reamed by consequences. That there, there, there are no other choices. So make your friends uncomfortable if you want to pay it forward, if you want to do right by the world, and if you want to add your energies to the moral progress of mankind and avert the disaster. See, everybody kicks and screams at the ethicist, but boy, it's the ethicist who knows what happens if he doesn't make them uncomfortable. Right? I mean, I don't want to go to the gym. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, and it's boring as hell. I did 40 minutes on a bike machine today. It's boring. <laughs> it is, of course. But the uh, the consequence is what? Is what? Oh, look, I broke my leg climbing the stairs, right? I mean, that's no good. Osteoporosis. Yay, brittle bones, right? Uh, I'm an astronaut. <laughs> so uh, the ethicist knows the consequences of being of surrendering to the discomfort of the moment, right? Yeah, it's uncomfortable if you're addicted to sugar and fat to not eat as much of it as you like, which is now why, for the first time in history, an American woman now weighs the same as an American man did in the 1960s, clocking in at 166 pounds. It's a future of catastrophic diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and a massive, fat, giant jugular bat sucking off the emotional financial resources of the young, I give you the American bloated female fish. Can't fit through doors. Have to have double doors. We need bigger seats and airplanes. And oh my God, we can't get them into the elevators anymore. We have to change all those numbers too. Because it's uncomfortable. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, of course you have to have Obamacare. And of course the, the, the public sector servants aren't going to give up their free health care. They've got an entire life of sitting with their giant asses on little motor scooters designed to, well, if I don't get my giant health care free, free, I'm doomed. Ah, anyway. Um, so, A, you don't have to do anything, but if you don't, you just join a whole bunch of parasites who feed off and interfere with all of us who are trying to keep people safe from disaster. And B, if you do decide that you want to help people out, you're just going to have to grit your teeth and say, I'm sorry you're uncomfortable. It's for your own good. Right now, I feel calm. Not nervous anymore. That really was a satisfying speech. Well, you know, it's true, right? I mean, so there's calm because you're free of the illusion that you can have your cake and eat it too, that you can change people for, for the better without making them uncomfortable. Yeah. I remember there was used to be a cartoon called Bloom County by a guy named Berkeley Breathed, which is <laughs> a pretty funny name. Anyway, um, and <clears throat> there was this penguin who wanted to lose weight. Yeah, yeah, things I always thought I'd say in a philosophy show. There's a, um, a penguin who wanted to lose weight, and he's like, I can't remember, it was something like, I'm on the all-asparagus and Alka-Seltzer diet, and that way, 
I can eat as much as I want, and asparagus and Alka-Seltzer, and I don't have to exercise, and I'm still going to lose weight. And the guy, one of his friends was like, what about just like eating less and exercising more? And he's like, no, 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 no. Alka-Seltzer and asparagus. And, then, and you get this calm, and I think that's what you're talking about, Dave. You get this calm when you go, okay, eat less and exercise more. I get it. There's no magic. There's no button. There's just the usual common sense stuff that everyone's been talking about forever. And the illusion that I can have my cake and eat it too, I've let go of. I've re-entered reality. And reality is a soothing place. Thank you. All right, this man, i got to move on to the next call, but I really appreciate you calling in and uh, let us know how it goes. Yeah, sure. All right, up next is Phil. Phil wrote in and said, on an FDR message board post, the caller wrote, ostracizing someone for moral reasons doesn't harm the person doing the ostracism, but ostracizing someone for aesthetic reasons absolutely harms the person doing the ostracism. Does Stefan's refusal to endorse or embrace hypergamy and his encouragement to ostracize people who defend and or engage in hypergamous behavior cause great harm to his audience? That's from Phil. Hello, Phil. Nice to meet you. Uh, thank you, Stefan. Nice to meet you, too. Uh, Phil is an alias. Um, I appreciate Mike for uh, allowing me to use an alias. Can I call you Elias? That work for me. Yeah. <laughs> Elias is much better as an alias because if I need to rap something, yes, I'm pre-rhymed. Yeah, there you go. There you go. All right. Um, the first thing I will say is that um, before I started listening to your show, like about uh, 18 months ago, I was on a very bad trajectory in terms of my future. And your podcast gave me so much clarity on my childhood, uh, the way that my parents were treating me even today. And the way that my niece was being uh, treated today, that no matter, I don't know how good my future is going to be, but it will be because of you. Like you were the person who started this all. And well, so not because any, of me, but I, I appreciate being a source point, but it's going to be you. you. You do the work, right? I'm just yammering away, uh, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, I absolutely do the work, but you were, you were the catalyst. You were the beginning. And so I know that uh, a lot of what I have to say is uh, critical. Um, and I know that I'm, you know, taking the position that you're wrong about certain things. But my position does not diminish my respect for you as a man, nor my sense of how sincerely you try to help other people. No, I appreciate that. And I certainly would not consider it a mark of respect for you to avoid helping me improve my thinking. That would be enabling bad mental habits. That would not be what I'd want at all. Right. Um, I will begin with a weird short statement, uh, which goes, if you and I were discussing something really, really important that we needed to get to the truth of the matter about, and I just casually said, Stefan, I just have this aesthetic preference for confusion and ambiguity when we're investigating this truth. Would you let me get away with that? I don't know, but I, I, Elias, I'd rather talk about the question that you wrote in with because there's some stuff I don't understand about it. So before we get nope. to the theoretical, if we could deal with what you wrote. 
Okay, so um, the number one aspect I want to uh, discuss is hypergamy. And uh, when uh, no, I- let's, No, let's, no, hang on, sorry. I just, because what I, what I got a couple of days ago, so I get the questions a couple of days before the show, which gives me some time to sort of mull, it, mull them over. So I have okay. to start with what you wrote, just because that's what I've been thinking about, Jumping right? Okay. So, okay, so ostr- you said you wrote, ostracizing someone for moral reasons doesn't harm the person doing the ostracism. But somebody, uh, 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 ostracizing someone for aesthetic reasons absolutely harms the person doing the ostracism. I, yes. don't, uh, I don't understand that. Well, what do you mean by ostracizing? I feel like there's two um, there's two different types of ostracizing. Uh, one is the uh, the voluntarily the voluntary no, 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 decision. Sorry. Not- but, sorry, what? Uh, I'm sorry. You, were, I apologize for interrupting because you. Were, I thought you were explaining something else. Sorry. Please go ahead. Okay. Um, there's two types of ostracism. The first is voluntarily deciding not to associate with anyone, and the second is uh, trying to sully someone's reputation. Or trying to present them that person as like below you in some way. Wait, so do you mean like slandering someone or or trying to harm someone's reputation? Yes, that is a form of ostracism. How how do you see that? Because um, if two people are making a different argument, or if two people disagree over something, if someone beforehand sullies the reputation of one of the speakers, it prevents or at least hampers people from discovering what the truth actually is. And so but why yes, would you allows- use the word ostracism? Sorry, why would you use the word ostracism for that? I mean, that's, I think, like, it's called poisoning the well in logical right, exactly. terms. Like, this this yes. guy is is a jerk, this guy is is a racist, and so on, right? So why would you listen to right. anything he says, right? I mean, that's it's a it's a common logical fallacy that is put forward by people who don't have a good counter argument. You know, like uh, I I can't disprove what you say, so I'm just gonna throw shit at you and hope people turn away because it smells bad. Um, yes, I understand that. I'm sorry. Were you confused by my use of ostracism? Well, I just wanted to know what you meant by ostracism. Ostracism is is kind of it's funny because it's one of these words that seems kind of very volatile but it's really not i mean it's just saying like if if you quit a job you're ostracizing your employer if you break up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend you're ostracizing them if a woman doesn't want to go on a date with me she's ostracizing me right she's just choosing not to associate with me and and we right. do this all the time you know yeah, i mean I, I i got three bad meals at that restaurant i'm never going back hey welcome to ostracism right i mean uh, so choosing not yeah. to associate with people, um, ostracism is a very heavy word for that, but it happens all the time uh, in the yes. world. You know, people make friendships, they break friendships, they go out, they break up, they patronize certain establishments, they don't. I mean, uh, and then they stop for whatever reason. And so ostracism, which is just choosing not to associate with someone, a divorce, of course, is is when uh, there's ostracism within the family. Um, so, uh, ostracism is, is, it's a word that people use when they don't like it when someone dissociates with them, right? Uh, ostracism as opposed to, well, they broke up with me or whatever, right? But anyway, so I just wanted to know what you meant by ostracism. Now, 
ostracizing someone i think i understand what you mean elias when you say ostracizing someone in terms of like slandering their reputation so that people don't want to listen to them that is yes. attempting to get other people to ostracize the person is that right yes exactly okay so it's it's contributing to ostracism but it, it, it the slander is not directly ostracizing someone but it's 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 done with the hopes of getting uh, other people to ostracize that person right Yes, definitely. Okay, got it. Okay. Um, the other key point in my uh, in my question is hypergamy. Um, no, no, no. And... We just started. Hang on, hang on. We're just starting with Go ostracism. Ahead. So you said ostracizing someone for moral reasons doesn't harm the person doing the ostracism, but ostracizing someone for aesthetic reasons absolutely harms the person doing the ostracism. I'm not sure what that sentence means. I mean, I have an idea, but I don't know. Right. So if someone is behaving immorally or if someone is spreading lies, you're supposed to ostracize that person. Whether I'm not sure what you mean by hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm not sure what you mean by supposed to. You're morally obligated to. Uh, well, no, see, morally obligated? I'm not sure what you mean. Or if you don't ostracize that person, then it is a negative reflection of you. As in why well, you again, want so to... now morally, right, so in, in terms of the way that I talk about it, right, there's those three layers that are in UPB, which is Universally yeah. Preferable Behavior, my free book on ethics at freedomainradio.com slash free. So the first is good and evil, right, and which is to do with the use of force. The second is yeah. aesthetically preferable, which can be universalized yes. but can't be enforced with violence. And the third is neutral. And so when right. you're talking about ostracism, um, if somebody lies to you, then lying is aesthetically negative behavior. In other words, it's bad, but you can't shoot someone for lying lying to you, right? So it doesn't involve morality uh, in terms of good and evil. But um, so you're not morally obligated to not see someone or not spend time with someone who's lying to you. Because how would you enforce okay. that moral obligation? Like people are morally obligated to not strangle me, which means I can use force to shoot someone and kill someone who's trying to strangle me. So there, there's okay. a very clear moral obligation, don't strangle me, which I'm perfectly justified in using force to prevent, right? Okay. So, so if you say, well, you morally, you have to not see people who are lying to you, well, how would that be enforced? Because when you start saying morally obligated, that's that's a very heavy and, and big uh, statement, at least the way that I've worked with ethics. And so okay. I, I would not say that, you know, well, you that, that guy lied to you, so you have to not be his friend or I'm going to shoot you, as opposed to you're not supposed to strangle me. And if you do, I'm going to shoot you, right? Those two would be very different situations, right? Right. Understood. My language is too strong. Right. And I'm, I'm not trying to nitpick. I just I really want to be clear because this is your first sentence that you wanted to talk about. So obviously it's the most important thing or a very important thing for you. So ostracizing for aesthetic reasons harms the person. So tell me what, what you mean by harming the person. Um, I should have been more clear on that. Um, I don't know if this is true, but I feel like there are situations where I bring forth a very true argument that makes people uncomfortable, uh, just like you described in the last call. 
And instead of people focusing on whether my argument is true or false, they instantly get uncomfortable and then move to ostracize. And that type of response, if my argument is true, actually harms that person because I presented them with an opportunity to accept something true that they didn't find comfortable. And by accepting that truth, they would grow or self-improve. And the moment they ostracize in that moment, well, then they are harming themselves by not accepting that truth. So, yeah, so if you say that, uh, uh, if you say, look out, I mean, to take a trite example, if you say, look out, there's a piano falling above you. And somebody says, I don't like your accent. Right. And, And then the piano falls on them. They're like, well, your prejudice against me telling you the truth has now caused you to have a piano as a hat and be dead, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. All and right. And um, so that's the harm. Okay. Um, so you are very confident, of course, that the arguments you're putting forward are true. So can you give me an example of a true argument that has caused uh, ostracism um, in, in you or for you? Okay. I will. Um before I begin, this is a this is my best representation of what happened during a meetup group for FDR members. Um, I promise not to I give probably, any direct. Sorry, just just because the other people aren't here to give their side, I wonder if you could give something that doesn't involve people we might actually be able to get in touch with. Just because if if there is something that that you know it's it's not fair if their positions are characterized right, and they're known in a community and they don't have a chance to respond. So I wonder if you could talk about something from your personal life. Hmm, for my personal life. It can't only have happened with one FDR meetup group in New York, so I'm just wondering if there's um, something that's happened in your personal life where you've experienced ostracism as a result of uh, people, um, uh, you bringing truth to people. Hmm. And the reason being that if it's only happened in one meetup group, it can't really be that big an issue, right? But it must have happened in other places for it to be the most important thing to talk about. I feel like it's happened all my life, but when I go back in time, the only things that are available are uh, the only memories that are available are the ones that have happened recently. Wait, are you saying like over how long a period? Uh, six to eight months. Are you saying that six to eight months, the only negative feedback you've gotten from your truth telling is from an FDR meetup group and everything else has been fine? Um, yes, I would say that. I well, did damn, have a, you're uh, doing good. <laughs> I mean, wow, I, I got to kneel at the feet of you because, I mean, if you're able to bring radical, alarming, unsettling truths without really experiencing any negative social consequences, you must be, like, fantastic uh, uh, at doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical, right? I don't know you, but no, I'm skeptical that six to eight months you've been talking radical truths to people in your, among families and friends and, and work, work colleagues or whatever and you've not experienced any negative consequences, that's quite startling. Uh, with work, I, uh, I'm a small business owner, and I don't uh, talk to, so I don't have any coworkers, and I don't talk to my clients about FDR just yet. Like, that's one of those things I want to uh, bring up later. Uh, with Wait, hang family, on, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt, sorry to interrupt. Wait, so you, what do you mean you don't talk about FDR? I don't mean that you should, I'm just... I would assume that you would talk about, you know, philosophy or truths that you've got because you, you brought up sort of hypergamy and so on, which is something I've talked about, but it's not a, a big topic 
in this show. It's certainly not the most controversial or anything like that. So is it that you would talk with people about FDR stuff or FDR topics? Is that right? And so that's where you'd get the most negative feedback? No, I will talk to people about male-female relationships and hypergamy, and I will get a lot of negative pushback. But not over the last six to eight months? Uh, over this last six to eight months, I've gotten a blend of a lot of positive feedback and a lot of very strong negative feedback. So it's been 50 Hang on, Elias, I just asked, sorry to interrupt, right. I'm getting confused. I asked you if you'd experienced any negative experience, like had any negative experience with your truth telling over the last six to eight months, and you said no, outside of the FDR meetup. Right, right. And now you're telling me that over the last six to eight months, you've experienced some significantly negative feedback. I'm baffled. No, only at the FDR meetup. Okay, I'm going to try this again, because I don't think you're hearing what I'm saying. I asked you if, and I'm not trying to catch you, like I'm, if there's something I've misunderstood, just, you know, set, set me straight. So um, you wanted to talk about an FDR meetup, and I said, well, you know, let's talk about something else for the reasons that I gave. And I, and I said, what are other examples where you've brought truth to people and have experienced negative feedback or whatever? And you said, well, nothing else in six to eight months, right? And then I said, and then you said, well, I bring up hypergamy with people, which is my truth telling, and I've experienced some significantly negative things, uh, negative feedbacks over the last six to eight months. So I'm trying to figure out what that means. Like, have you experienced negative feedback for you bringing the truth to people over the last six to eight months? The answer that you've given me in the space of like five minutes is both yes and no. Right. It is... Um... In my personal life, I don't get a lot of negative feedback whenever I bring up hypergamy to people. Um, but at uh, certain FDR meetup groups, there was a very negative pushback. And I understand how you don't want me to represent what happened without giving them a chance to defend themselves. But I also will say that if you don't let me talk about what happened, then I'm kind of stuck here. So are you saying that the... Only because, I mean, you're, as far as I understand it, you're not a, a young man. You're not middle-aged like no, me, not but you're not a young man. And so how long have you been talking about hypergamy and male-female relations with people? Um, about nine months. So you, you're pretty new to, to this whole communication about challenging topics, or did you communicate about challenging topics before that in other areas? Uh, in other areas, I do remember. I know I've been, I've always been that type of personality that uh, challenges what people say, but when I go back beyond nine months ago, it's just all, it's just all blank. I feel like I've been putting so much energy over this last nine months into this whole hypergamy thing that everything else beforehand just doesn't matter or just isn't emotionally available for me. Okay, so you're bringing up hypergamy and male-female relations and you've had no negative experiences of any significance, if I understand it correctly, outside of one FDR meetup group. Right. And, okay, so what have you been talking about with um, male-female relations and, and hypergamy that other people are accepting with no problems? Um, the number one thing I will say is that um, you and I disagree with what hypergamy is. Uh, when I bring up the, when I look up the Wikipedia definition of hypergamy, it says the act of marrying uh, a person of higher social class. 
And it is uh, also implied that uh, when a woman seeks resources, that's what hypergamy is. Um, do you think that definition is accurate? Yeah, I mean, the I don't know about the second one. I mean, we all seek resources. I mean, a man seeks resources when he tries to go and get a job. Does that mean he's practicing hypergamy? No, I, as far as I understand it, and again, no, I'm no deeply scholared expertise uh, expert in in this area. But hypergamy is the woman's desire to to marry up, to to find a man who has the highest possible social status, prestige, access to resources, uh, and so on. The highest a status male that she can possibly get based upon her own um, appeal. She she wants to get the man with the most resources. And uh, yes. the reason for that, obviously, is biological, which is that uh, women are traditionally have been disabled for decades, giving birth to and um, breastfeeding and, and raising little children, which, again, having had first-hand experience now for six years, is a very time-consuming uh, endeavor. And so a woman wants to get as many resources as possible because that means that she can have the most children possible. In other words, or a way of putting it more technically from a biological standpoint, is that the genes that trigger sexual arousal in women based upon high, the status of the men and the higher the status, the more arousal, those genes are the most likely to be selected for the most reproduction uh, is probably the best way to. Uh, to put it. So yeah, women women want to marry up, women want to uh, breed with a man who has the greatest uh, resources under one condition. Okay. Under one condition. And that condition is that those resources are scarce. Yes. Right? And this goes they... into the R versus K reproductive strategy thing, which I've talked about before. Basically, very, yes, very they... briefly, the R reproductive strategy is pursued by um, animals where, where there's an abundance of resources and predators they cannot fight, right? So why do rabbits reproduce so frequently and, and mice and, and things like that? Because they're never going to run out of grass to eat because they're going to be preyed upon by, by owls and, and wolves and foxes and, and so on. And so there's not really hypergamy in, in the way of, of like, well, boy, I've, I've got to get a, a man with lots of resources because the resources are everywhere. And so you, you, your reproductive strategy when you are in an excess resource environment is to just breed as much as possible and to invest very little into your children. And so yeah, hypergamy kicks in in particular when resources are scarce and when the quality of a man has a direct bearing or the quality of the male has a direct bearing on the availability of resources. So for wolves, very hypergamous species, um, because uh, the, the quality of the wolf the male wolf as hunter uh, has a direct bearing on the amount of resources he's able to bring to the female wolf and, and the pups. And so hypergamy is related to, um, is, is strongly correlated to scarce resources that male skill can have an effect upon, if that makes sense. Yes, that does make sense. Um, I would say, though, that the world has changed. Um, all of those conclusions that you have illustrated are from observing humanity for like a very long time. But in 1950, women had access to birth control. And from there, they also had access to labor-saving devices through technology. 
and also the ability to gather resources for themselves through easy jobs. And so, in my opinion, for the last 65 years, this is the first time in human history where women are free to choose what they want, to reflect on what they want. And so my understanding of hypergamy is that we are still hypergamous now. It's just that it's not about marriage anymore. It's about sex and it's about sex and it's about emotional connection. And so the best way I can summarize it is that women will divide men into two different classes. Uh, the first class of man is not really going to be a good father, but he looks really, really nice. And he has like this aloof kind of distant personality that's intriguing, but she knows that he's not going to be a good father in the long run. Like that's the first type of guy. And the second type that's of guy the, uh, is the, sorry to be technical. That's the that's the our reproductive strategy. In biological terms, it's called the dad versus the cat. And there have been studies yeah. that show that women prefer more strongly masculine features, guys with beards, when they're ovulating. There's a peak in, yes, in women's interest in hypermasculinized men, as I'm sure you're aware, when women are ovulating. Yeah. And that's because women want to hedge their bets because society can change, right? If you're in a uh, hypergamous society, would be uh, an agricultural society. But however, yes. uh, agricultural societies are subject to vagaries in weather patterns. And, and floods yes. and tornadoes and, and, and armies and so on. So uh, women need to have children who have the capacity to either go R or go K, depending on socio and environmental cues, starting from conception onwards. Uh, this is why stress in women tend to produce more promiscuous children, because that's the R reproductive strategy and stress on the mother's body during pregnancy produces more R because it's assumed that there is uh, there are stressors in the society and uh, in the environment, which means that there's less control, which means breeding more is the best way to to reproduce. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that there are you know it's it's to to put it coarsely, right? As as I'm sure you're aware too, it is the argument the of the the alpha fucks and the beta bucks, right? That the woman wants yes. to have sex with the alpha, but then wants the beta to pay for the uh, raising of of the children, and in many ways that is a very good strategy for for female genes it's not a great strategy for male genes in particular the beta genes right well that depends on how you look at it if you think the beta's genes are permanent that he can't improve and that he can't improve his position then it's tragic but if you believe that the beta's genes can improve their position then it's just an opportunity you know, like if the I'm man, sorry, if the sorry, beta sorry, Elias, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm not sure what you mean when you say the beta's genes can improve their position. I mean, if if you're raising another man's children, that's a dead end for you genetically, right? Absolutely. But the point is, if it was, was it possible when he was younger to acquire certain personal habits that made him appear or be more alpha? And if it were possible, and if he chose to avoid those options, then he is partially responsible for being in his predicament. Oh yeah, oh no, I, I get, I get all of that for sure. I mean, but the, the fundamental change. I mean, people talk about birth control and and labor-saving devices, and I don't think that has any effect on hypergamy whatsoever. The, the only the only thing that has an effect on hypergamy, uh, or the only thing that has an effect 
on the alpha versus uh, on the dads versus the cats equation for women is risk, right? So why yeah. why was it that women tended to maybe they'd flirt a little bit with the cats, but they'd end up marrying and have children with the dads because society did not support women who had children with men who didn't stick around. Absolutely. Right. Those, those women would, would put their children up for adoption or if they raised those uh, children. And you can see this in Downton Abbey, which is meticulously researched from a uh, socio-historical standpoint, at least as far as I have been able to see. So there was massive social pressure on women to not have sex with a cat, but rather to wait for the dad. And I get it. I mean, it's like there's this old Woody Allen movie, I can't remember which one it is, where he talks about this woman who was fantastic in bed and utterly insane. Yes. Right? And, and you know, the hot crazy chick is, is a well-known trope in the male lexicon of dating, right? You know, the hotter she is, the crazier she is. And uh, so sexual attraction gives people great power, and power tends to corrupt. And so the way that society used to restrain the desire of women to have sex with alphas and have betas raise their children was to ostracize the women who had sex with uh, alphas uh, yes, or absolutely. cats, right? And, and that's yes, gone right. because the welfare state now pays for it all. And so, so there are, there's no shortage of, of resources for women who've had children. And the whole point was to starve women of resources if they had children outside of marriage. In other words, uh, the woman would have to get a commitment from a man to marry uh, her, and then she could start having kids. Uh, but that's not necessary now because the welfare state uh, throws tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars per year at women and gives them, you know, subsidized housing and free health care and free schools and all this kind of crap. And so the the lid on women's irresponsibility has just been uh, lifted. And this is why this has become such a grotesque tragedy is that the welfare state creates a an R environment and thus promotes yes, R strategies, right? Because the, the R is what happens, uh, the R reproductive strategy, have as many kids as you want and don't invest much in the kids and the dads don't have to be around. That is what human beings naturally tend towards both genetically and in particular epigenetically. That's what human beings tend towards in a situation of limitless resources and fiat currency and debt uh, and the welfare state creates the illusion of limitless resources, which is what destroys the K-selected family, right? Where, which is fewer children, a slower development to children and higher investment in raising children in each individual child. And so I, you know, the pill and oh, I don't I mean, I don't think that matters fundamentally because that just allows a woman to choose when she has children. But the pill doesn't make children free. And it certainly doesn't make children a profit center. That requires the welfare state. Right. I agree with you. I agree with you on all of that. Um, my perspective, though, is that a young beta male can self-improve if he just understands what hypergamy is and embraces it by conducting himself accordingly. But what do you mean by improve? I'm not sure what, what you mean by that. He can become more alpha in order to, I don't want to say keep women in line, but that's like what I'm getting at. If a man improves himself as a catch to women, the more of a catch he is, the more options he will have. And that will enable him to explore which women are morally good and upright versus which women aren't. 
And yeah, so, so I get it. So if you get if you get an MBA from Harvard or I don't know whatever is big in the business world these days, then you have more choice about where you work. So if you add to your value as an employee, then you get more choices and you can negotiate harder and you can get a better job. Yes. And so my position is that if men want to have a sense of what women are like, or if they want to have a sense of what the truth is about themselves and their relationships with women, they have to embrace hypergamy. Like they have to physically work out. Because if they wait, don't wait, wait, work hang on. out, <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Look, I, I, wait. We just went from being a quality partner to a to a man to work. Sorry, being a quality partner to a woman to well, mm-hmm. that's just working out. I assume that that's just the beginning. I mean, I'm I like to work out, and I'm a big fan of working out and all that. But um, I, I don't think that you mean that fundamentally. I think you'd start off with you know be responsible, be ethical, be consistent, uh, be someone who has some financial resources or some some value in a financial sphere uh, be somebody who's loyal who's trustworthy you know that is i think going to raise your stock price with quality women right whereas if he's just like well i got six packs isn't that just going to get shallow dumb women to want to have sex with you yes but the problem is if the really philosophically strong morally correct deeply emotional highly empathetic person does not have six-pack abs, then a woman will notice that whether she's quality or not. And she will... uh, (laughs) Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying that if you don't have six-pack abs, a quality woman will count that as a big strike against you? I will say that if you do not have six-pack abs or if you're not working to acquire six-pack abs, if you're just walking down a street and a quality woman is looking at you, you will look just like everybody else who does not have six-pack abs and is not philosophically of high quality. Well, okay. First of all, I think you can tell a lot about a person's intelligence just depend, you know, about their their gait, right? I mean, how they walk, how they move, uh, their eye contact, the liveliness of their eyes, uh, and so on. There's a lot that can can happen in terms of somebody figuring out whether you're a quality person. Uh, or not. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if you walk down the street regularly without a shirt on, but I don't think that necessarily, the, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with six-pack abs. I think they're fine. They're sort of a mythical beast path 40 for the most part for me. But anyway, uh, there's nothing, it's fine, you know, if you want to do that many sit-ups. But um, I don't know that that's, it's interesting to me that that's the first thing you'd go to is like a six-pack. Well, it's the first thing I go to because it is fundamentally true that having a really strong body is just universally aesthetically preferable to not. And it's also no, something. Uh, bio- that- no, no, no. Biologically, uh, uh, biologically, it's complicated. It's not that simple. I mean, what you're talking about is our reproductive strategy, which only goes for genetic fitness and doesn't care about parental involvement. Right. I the, agree rabbits with that. Just, the rabbits just have sex with the gen- genetically fittest people they can, kids that have uh, fathers that they can find, and they don't care about the moral qualities of the father because it's just reproductive, right? Whereas if you, I, if a woman is is case selected, right? I mean, if she's going to have fewer kids but invest resources, she's going to want a dad around, and the six pack is only of fundamental attractiveness to the R selected. 
mating strategy. To the K-selected mating strategy, the K-selected woman says, wait a minute, this guy's got to be spending two hours a day in the gym and is pretty body obsessed in order to get that physique. And he's put that time into developing his physique, which he's not put into developing other things like his character or his earning potential or his virtue or these kinds of things. You would automatically look at a man with a very healthy body and assume that he's not philosophically strong? Well, I just made a case. I mean, if you want to counter-argue it, but just putting a question mark at the end of a statement is not the same as making an argument. There's opportunity costs, right? Uh, so you, you have a six-pack, is that right? No, I'm only working on it, and I've only been working on acquiring it for six months. And how, uh, how, how many hours a day or a week are you spending trying to acquire a six-pack, or, or working out as a whole? Uh, working out as a whole, it is an hour a day, like five times a week, so it's five hours. Well, no, it's not just five hours, because you have to go to the gym, and you have to change, you have to shower, oh, you have to okay. do the laundry associated with having all that gym wear get sweaty and all that, right? So it's not just five no, hours, I, right? No, it is five hours, because I don't do gym. I do uh, body weight exercises, and so every workout that I do is in my home. And so I deliberately chose this workout program because it would be in my home and would give me good results without having to do the whole drive to the gym thing. Okay, so you've got... 20 hours a week, pretty much, invested in this this stuff, right? Sorry, 20 no, hours a month. Four. 20 hours a month. Yeah, 20 hours a month, four hours a week, five hours a week. Five hours a week, you said? Yes. Okay, well, I think that's great. You know, so that, I mean, if, I mean, I've certainly known guys who are doing like three hours a day in the gym. Sometimes I knew a guy who did four hours a day in the gym. And he looked magnificent. Yeah. yeah but he hadn't nuts. read a book in three years. Sorry? Yeah, and that becomes crazy. Like, that becomes a trade-off. Like, it becomes an obsession that, that prevents him from pursuing other things. But yeah, and I mean, I, I, I tried to do like an hour to an hour and a half every other day. So, I, uh, you know, I'm not going to kvetch on, on you. I mean, that seems reasonable, uh, uh, you know, to, to stay healthy and all of that. So, that's great. Now, what are you doing in terms of developing your, your character and personality if you want to attract a quality woman? Um, I, I am, my, my exploration of hypergamy and of, uh, pickup artistry in general has been to get a really strong sense of what women biologically find attractive and Which adding women? that. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry. Which women? K women or R women? Both. Both? No, no. <laughs> I don't think that works very well. And I understand. Um, what I believe happens is that I mean, I've got this image of you as a wolf trying to have an orgy with a bunch of rabbits. I just, I don't, I'm no, sure there's a kink no. somewhere out there. I'm sure there's a subreddit for that somewhere out there, you know, like wolf rabbit no. orgy sex with pictures. But I don't know that it works no, hugely well. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's trying to maximize my ability to create sexual arousal in women, whether they are R-selected or K-selected. And then being able to talk to them, whether through pickup artistry or through philosophical questions or blend of both, to determine their character. Okay, so can you but, give me an example of pickup artistry? So let's pretend that I'm a woman and you're coming up to try and pick me up. Okay, so this uh, happened uh, to me personally. Um, 
I was driving into a McDonald's to pick up, uh, you know, like a coffee. And when I pulled up to the window, the woman gave me an involuntary smile. And I know what that smile means. Like, I know that that was instant sexual attraction, right? Like, I knew it. And I know that the honest thing is to just say, you know, hey, would you like to go out with me? But my own perspective is that women don't find that attractive. Like, it's not fun for them to just be honestly asked whether they want to uh, to be accompanied on a date or not. And so my rule always is to try to create some emotional intensity using uh, an aloof, challenging perspective. So what I did was I pulled in and I saw her do that involuntary smile and my radio was off. So there's no music happening at all. And so what I did is I put on this like really exaggerated, like sour, angry expression and I asked her straight up, are you laughing at my music? Right. And she was legitimately confused. And she just repeated back to me, are you am I laughing at your music? And so, Wait, so I you, you pretended to sorry, I didn't understand. So you 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 lied to her, right? Because you were pretending to be aggressive and, and hostile towards her when that wasn't actually what you felt. If you um, when you call it a lie, you're imagining how you would feel in that interaction. But if she feels differently because she's looking at my facial expression. No, 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 no. I'm a philosopher, which means that that how I feel in the situation, that doesn't have anything to do with it. You you well, said, how, are you laughing? You, you put on a sour expression, a hostile expression. You said, are you exactly. laughing at my music? Yes, this and is exaggerated. You did not you did not for a moment imagine that she was laughing at your music. Absolutely so not. And I'm you obvious. pretended to be angry and lied to her. Yes. Okay. I'm just let, let's just be honest about. I mean, let's be honest about you lying, right? Because earlier on, you were saying the lying is bad, right? Okay. So, okay. So I'm I'm just trying to understand how this works, because and I appreciate you sharing this with me. It's it's great. Okay. Um, so you you lied to her and you pretended to be angry when you weren't, and then what happened? So she repeats in a very legitimately confused voice, "Am I laughing at your music?" And so my response was to turn my head to the side a little bit and half smirk and say i don't know when i pulled into this uh when i pulled into this window you were laughing at something right now you know and that it's not a very fair situation because she's an employee and you're a customer and if she's afraid that she's upset or offended you she's afraid also that you might complain to her manager right yes but that's only if she takes everything that i say seriously if i'm exaggerating it with facial expressions that suggest untruth then she can participate in the interaction as if it's a game. Okay, so all right, let's let's say that that she doesn't like so, but it has to be believable enough that she believes that you're actually angry when you first say it, right? It it has to toe the line of being somewhat believable, but somewhat obvious that it's not believable at all. So it's a blend of it's that's just what it is. Like you're creating an emotional intensity through pretense. Okay, so you're pretending to be angry, and she knows that you're pretending to be angry? And then it just becomes a game. So hang on, hang on. So at the beginning, she knows that you're pretending to be angry when you say, are you laughing at my music? She knows that you're joking. Yes. Okay. She knows that I'm joking, and I'm confused. 
Uh, and she, Wait, you're confused or she's um, confused? He has exaggerated facial expressions. Because if a man, if a person combines exaggerated facial expressions, it's the exaggeration that creates the sense of this guy isn't being straight with me. So you're confusing her. And so she uses Absolutely. Okay, so you're trying to disorient her by giving her mixed signals. In other words, your voice sounds angry, but you're smiling? Yes. Isn't that sort of crazy? Like if somebody snarls at me and says something like, like accuses me of something negative, but they're smiling at the same time, don't they look kind of crazy? Um, you're a guy, though. She's a woman. When men present mixed signals like that, like it draws them in. They are biologically designed to find that interesting. Okay, so then, so you say, are you laughing at my music? And she said, what do you mean? Am or something I laughing like that? at... Yeah, and then what did you say? She was legitimately confused. I, I smirked and turned my head to the side and I was like, I don't know. When I pulled up to this window, you were laughing at something. Right. And, and her, then? Response, her response was to open up like a flower, like she understood, like I saw it click in her mind that this was completely a game, that this is me hitting on her. And her body language became completely open and she got this huge smile on her face and then she toned down the smile and she leaned over in the window and she's like, I don't know, maybe I'm just a happy person. Okay. And if I wanted to ask her out, I would have said something like, I don't know, maybe you are a happy person, but what I think you need is for someone to teach you not to laugh at other people's music because it wounds their soul. Somebody needs to teach you not to laugh at other people's music. That sounds a little sinister. No, uh, sinister when a guy hears it. When a woman hears it and knows she's being hit on, it's just funny. Somebody needs to teach you a good lesson. So a guy would experience that as threatening, but a woman experiences yeah. that as sexy? Yes, or at least interesting. It doesn't mean she's going to have sex with you that day, but it does mean that she's interested. Okay, do you mind if I ask you a quick question? Go ahead. How old was this woman? Um, it was hard to gauge, but I would say 28 to 30. Okay. So she's 28 years old. Oh, let's uh -huh. say 30, because I know you're in your late 30s. So I'm glad you didn't Sam. say 20, because that would be pretty sad, right? Um, so she's 30. You're in a car and she's working at McDonald's. I know. Dude. You're a small business owner, a very intelligent fellow, right? Yes. And she's 30 years old and she's working at McDonald's. Yes. And you want to go out with her? No, I wanted to I wanted to practice my flirtation skills the moment that I saw her smile at me like that. I asked I you for an example of pickup artistry and you found as a guy in a car 
who's got some trappings of wealth and success, I assume. I mean, I assume it's not no. like a pedal car or <laughs> something like no, that, not. right? And a bumper car. Right. So you no, have a, a trappings of, of success and you're flirting with a woman whose life has taken such a tragic arc that she's 30 years old and working at the pickup window in McDonald's, which is like IQ 85 stuff, if you're lucky. And mm -hmm. I assume that as a small business owner, you've got an IQ of 110, 115. So you're two More standard deviations above her in intelligence, likely, and you're taking great pride in being able to manipulate her? No, I'm taking great pride in knowing that I was able to create that emotional intensity based on the articles that I have read that says that that kind of thing works. Well, yeah, if you've got, listen, I'll tell you this in general, if you're two standard deviations higher in intelligence than someone, you can pretty much fool them and manipulate them quite easily. But, you know, it's like me saying, well, you know, I, uh, I'm a real tough guy because I, I beat up a guy who's two standard deviations smaller than me. In other words, he's like, I don't know, five foot tall, <laughs> right? And so the idea, like, this this is a very low status woman right maybe she's doing her phd and working at the at the counter at mcdonald's but you are basically saying as a really smart guy i can fool a really not smart woman and i'm just not okay. sure how that says you've got game okay fine so if i take a second example um this woman is uh very, very intelligent, uh, very, very well raised. I would say that she probably has an IQ of like 130. Um, when I met up with her for dinner, I extended my hand across the table to, you know, say, let's hold hands in the restaurant, even though it was a first date. And when she looked at me, um, she looked me dead in the face and she's like, uh, it looks like you're begging for something, but I don't know what it is. Oh, is that what she said? And oh, no, that's what that's her look said. No, that's what she said. So she, oh, she said, it looks like you're begging for something, but I don't know what it is. What it is. Was yes. this your first date? Yes. That's incredibly rude. It is, but at the same, well, no, if I, if I choose to interpret it as rude, then I can respond as if it's rude and I can disengage myself from her. But if I assume that it's funny and then engage in a behavior that says, no, this is funny, let's go with it, then we each invite each other to participate in it as if it's a game. And so my response to her was uh, an exaggerated, angry face saying, girl, why did you have to say things like that? You know, it's one thing if you're just ignoring my hand, but now that you said that, now I got to turn my hand over. Right. And so I turn my hand over, leaving it there, you know, in the let's not hold hands in the restaurant position anymore. And so then after like seven or eight minutes of really deep philosophical conversation, I turn my hand back over to say, hey, let's hold hand in, hands in the restaurant. And she looks at my upturned hand, gives me this half smirk, and she's like, I'm going to give you an orange. Would you like an orange? And at that point, I left because it was funny because wait what was i don't get the orange thing oh there were oranges on the table 
And so because there were spice oranges on the table, when she saw me turn my hand over again, she said, I'm going to give you an orange. Would you like an orange? I still don't see why that's funny. Maybe I'm missing something. Well, no, the point is that if you interpret it as rude, then you kind of box yourself in and say, oh, you're being rude to me and I don't like it. And then she, if she, if her intention was to just have fun in the moment and you tell her she's being rude, well, then you don't have an emotional connection with her and then you have to leave her and she has to leave you. But because I interpreted her intentions as friendly and funny, I was able to participate in the conversation with a false sense of being offended because that signals funniness in the moment. Oh, so but I don't see it. So if she's being playful and you're playful back, I mean, I don't, okay. But I don't see how that's pickup artistry. I mean, that's just, I mean, I wasn't there, obviously, right? I don't know if she did it with a big laugh or whatever. I would find, like, what, what you've talked about in both situations is like a power play. Because if you're reaching across the table, then you're reaching for her, and then she says, looks like you're begging, she's elevating herself and putting you down. In the same way that when you um, alarm the woman by driving up and saying, are you laughing at my music? You're putting her on the defensive. In other words, you're elevating yourself and putting her down, Right. So this, this, this jockeying for power, this jockeying for dominance, um, I don't think that's going to lead to a quality relationship in the long run. In other words, if you set up the stage where I find women are really attracted to me when I jockey for dominance with them, boy, wouldn't it be great to spend a lifetime with a woman like that? I think I'd rather chew my own ass off. I think that would be a pretty exhausting life to, to have. So I'm still trying to figure out how you're getting the high quality K women out of this um when what what will happen is it's it's what i was saying before that my personal assessment of you is that you are alpha you are alpha when i look at diagrams of what hypergamy is in, in modern times you are alpha you mastered them all you have physical fitness you have um you have lifestyle, you have enough, more than enough money to get by, you devote yourself to the truth and you help people, and you've always just had this natural sense of how to talk to women. Um, it is obvious from the way that you present yourself in your podcast that you've always been alpha in this way. So when you as an alpha individual say, well, I never had to resort to all this trickery and power play and all of that, and I've had quality oh, women. I didn't say that. I didn't. Hang on. Hang on. I'm not sure who you're talking to now, but I, I, I didn't say that. Did I? Sorry. No. Um, it's Did I say I've never had to resort to this kind of trickery? I, I don't think I've said that. No, but it's, it's an implication. No, no. You it's said that that's what I said. Sorry. And no. And I meant to say that you imply it in all of your podcasts. I don't think that I've ever said I've never had to play any games with women. I don't think I've ever said that it doesn't matter how you present yourself to women. And, you know, that I think I've said teasing can be fun and playfulness can be a lot of fun. I think that I just, I'm always, I'm always sort of, you know, when, when someone says, well, this is what you said. And I said, well, no, no, I never said that. And then they said, well, that's what you implied. It's like, mm, I don't know. I uh, think you might be bringing more of yourself to, than me to that part of the interaction. Understood. 
Would you make it a rule that um, if a man wants to understand the truth about himself and the nature of women, that he has to work out? Simply because women as a whole are more attracted to men who have strong bodies, whether they're case selected or are selected? I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, if you look at Tom Likas, uh, you know, Tom Likas, uh, you know, looks like a bold boiled hen uh, and uh, right. he gets tons of women. I mean, uh, I think Larry King, who looks like a, a garden gnome in suspenders, uh, has been married many times and, and has young, attractive. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if, if Donald Trump does a lot of sit ups. Uh, Danny DeVito uh, gets uh, used to get lots of women. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, just saying, well, workout equals female attractiveness. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to say. I'm not saying that there's a bunch of chubby tasters among the fairer sex, but uh, the range of what people find attractive can be kind of wide. And I think that in general, women are very well attuned to figuring out what a man is going to bring them in terms of resources, at least the case-selected women. And case-selected women, as far as I've, you know, talked about it with really high-quality women, uh, you know, basically, uh, they'll, they'll look at a guy walking past who's, you know, built like a, bro a, a brick shithouse and, you know, nothing but, but abs and, and viper shoulders all over the place. They've got the cobra back, right? And, you know, that basically, it's like, yeah, that could be fun for a weekend, but, you know, no, that's no one to settle down with, right? <laughs> High maintenance, right? And the reason they, they say that is because that is a sexual mating display mm -hmm. for our selected women. And these are all K women. And so they say, yeah, I can do R for a little bit. It's easier for K to dip into R than for R to become K um, uh, because it's a devolution rather than an evolution. Uh, and so th they'll look at that and they'll say, well, there's a guy who spent a lot more time in the gym than he has spent, um, you know, working overtime. And there is this sort of reality that um, women are very aware of the trade-offs that men are bringing to bear when they present themselves. And this is why, you know, an, an ugly guy in, in, a cor in, in a Lamborghini or a fat guy in a Lamborghini can, can do just as well, if not better, than, you know, some built guy living in his mom's basement or whatever. And that's because the time, focus, and attention, if you put a huge amount of work into your body, there's opportunity costs that you're not pursuing in other areas. And also, the woman, the women of quality know for sure that you're trying to attract women who are going to look more at your body than your mind. In other words, they know that a very built male body is an advertisement for our selected women, that you want the R selected women. And so the K selected women, they'll be like, eh, you know, it'd be fun for a weekend, but I mean, that's not one you'd get serious with. It sounds like you're asserting that it's impossible for a man to be physically built, philosophically sound, of high character, and know how to just naturally talk to women at the same time. Like, it sounds like you're saying that that's all impossible. But dude, dude, come on. Listen, I just made a case. And now you're saying, well, it sounds like you're saying this. I just said something, and now you're going to an imaginary conversation, right? I, you know I just said something. You can respond to something I said, or you can make up something that you think I'm saying. I'd actually prefer it if you want to have a conversation that you respond to what I said, even if you disagree with it, especially if you disagree with it. But making up something you think I might be implying is not having a conversation with me. I 
disagree that it is wise for a woman to assume that a man who looks a certain way cannot possibly be philosophically sound. She can did generalize. I did I say that? Did I say that? It's impossible. No, you didn't say that it was impossible. So why don't you deal with what I said rather than what you think I might be saying? Okay. So you said, I said that women, the, this is what I said. I said women know that there are trade-offs involved and they know that a man who's putting huge amounts of work into his body is not putting into other things and the fact that he's focusing so much on his body means that he's more likely to be trying to get a, uh, a an R-selected woman. I said nothing about possible or impossible or absolutes or anything like that. I don't agree with the generalization. I think the general generalization itself is prejudicial. Okay, would, would you like be, to make an argument or are you just going to use the word prejudicial? I think it would be in a woman's best interest to allow that man to talk to her first and then get a gauge for how intelligent and how philosophically sound he is rather than just assuming he's not philosophically sound nor intelligent because he's spending that much time in the gym. Why did I, did I ever say that the woman would not talk to that man? No, but you presented a case-selected woman as someone who will look at that man and say, well, there are trade-offs in all of that, and I could be with him for like a weekend. Which would involve conversation, right? Not necessarily. She can just look at him and make, a pr and make an assessment. Wait, wait, hang on. Are you saying that she'd spend a weekend with him and they would have no conversation at all? No, she would, she can, what you presented is a monologue in her head that happens before he has even spoken to her. And seems right. to so happen. she's willing, she's willing to have a conversation with him and she might be willing to have a weekend with him, but he's probably not a good candidate for settling down with. Oh, okay. So that's how you presented it. Like you presented it as a monologue that happens in her head. So you presented it as a conclusion she makes before she even hears him say anything. Look, I mean, and we all have to make life decisions based upon social cues, right? The homeless guy out front of an office I work in might be mm -hmm. an investment genius. He might be. You know, clean him up, send him to business school. I mean, he might just be that Will Smith character in some damn movie where he's just like he's homeless, but he's a business genius. Might be. But I don't see a lot of business people pulling homeless people into their offices and making it a big project. We have to make decisions based upon incomplete information. We cannot invest massive resources in everyone hoping that they're somehow the wild exception to the bell curve of probability. You know, the woman with giant false ash eyelashes, a purple wig, massive double D artificial boobs and a miniskirt might be a genius philosopher. I don't like that comparison. No, I get it. I'm, just, I'm not trying to compare you to that person. I'm just saying we have to draw some conclusions based upon, or we have to make decisions based on incomplete information because time and resources are all finite. I'm not comparing you to such a caricature, right? No, you're not. Um, and, but... and we all have to make these decisions. So the guy who, who lisps and, and, and has peroxided hair and works in a hair salon 
and listens to uh, Pet Shop Boys obsessively and, uh, you know, and, and speaks in this outrageously gay manner, he might be straight. Right. He might be. But, but I don't think it's crazy to say, I'm going to go with gay. That doesn't mean that you wouldn't be aware that it might be wrong. You may be incorrect, right? He might just be really flamboyant or British. So, but we all have to make decisions. Maybe the person who's covered head to toes in tattoos and piercings and, and whatever, maybe that person has, you know, deep abiding Buddhist self-knowledge and spirituality and is as, as calm as a, a, a sedated rabbit. But we all have to make decisions. You know, maybe, maybe the guy who shows up for the job interview in a scuba outfit is a business genius, right? But we all have to make decisions based upon incomplete information. And I'm tired. It's not your fault, right? Because it's just something that happens all the time. I'm tired when I say, well, this is how, in general, we would have to make decisions based on that. And you say, well, there could be exceptions. It's like, well, yeah, there could be exceptions. The homeless guy might be a business genius. The guy showing up to work in a scuba gear outfit might be a fantastic employee and so on. But we don't have eternity and an infinity in which to apply resources and, and explore every conceivable possibility and opportunity. Uh, so we have to make decisions based upon incomplete information. And uh, yeah, the guy who's got the six pack and who spends, you know, hours, not you, but spends hours a day in the gym or whatever, and that's his, his obviously his, his major focus, maybe he would be um, a, a great person to, to settle down with and so on. Fantastic. But, um, if I was a quality woman and you told me about how you scared and confused a 30 year old woman working at McDonald's and considered yourself some great lover because of that, I'd be like, what? <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. I can push over a kid that doesn't make me a heavyweight champion. Do you think a man who is very philosophical but chooses to be overweight harms himself by being overweight? Well, I've made this case before in a show. I think not only does he harm himself, he also harms the cause of philosophy. Because philosophy Absolutely. is supposed to be about self-knowledge and, and wisdom. And I think that being obese is basically saying um, it's like, like Freud with his 20 cigar a day habit, even after he's had a dozen operations for cancer of the jaw, he continues to obsessively smoke his cigars, pulling this inexcusable bullshit of saying when people say, well, wait a minute, maybe the cigar represents, he said, no, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. It's like, well, if it's just a cigar, then put the fucking thing down because it's killing you. Right. I mean, so, um, I think that if, if you do have uh, if you do focus on on self knowledge and the deferral of gratification and and wisdom and moderation in things, then I think being obese means that you're not being very good at philosophy. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think those are those are markers. I would assume that somebody who is um, obese uh, and claims to be a philosopher is probably not working in the area of self knowledge and is not able to apply the Aristotelian philosophy of of moderation and the mean to his own plate. What about a man who's not obese but doesn't work out and is just obviously physically weak? Well, I would assume that that person is making particular choices that mm -hmm. I would, you know, I mean, so maybe this person is like so obsessed with coming up with a unified field theory that he's spending all this time 
whiteboarding and, and thinking and obsessing and maybe the gym really interferes with that, in which case I'm like, yeah, go for it. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I can see why somebody might want to make that that trade-off. In the same way, if somebody is really focused on making money and that requires, like for whatever, they're an accountant or, or they're a business magnet and that means a lot of sitting down, then, you know, they're going to be overweight, but that's not philosophical. I wouldn't say, well, boy, they must have a really bad ability to make what? To make money because they've got office butt. You know, I mean, that's, they're, they're focusing mm -hmm. on making money and not focusing on going to the gym. And I might think, you know, for general happiness, maybe a bit more balanced, but, you know, that's what they're focusing on. I agree with that. Um, my position is that if we accept that women find certain body types attractive, and if we accept that they find certain financial positions attractive, and if we accept that they find certain flirting styles attractive, then we have no choice but to pursue all of those things. Because if we don't Wait, are pursue you saying, those but, but women as a whole find all of this stuff attractive? I don't I don't I don't get how women as a whole are gonna find something attractive. I mean, biker chicks I've seen them, my biker chicks like guys who have thighs like garbage cans and you know, like wear skull caps and little leather waistcoats that look like they're about to explode out of them. And right. those um, those biker chicks like the biker guys and then the Bay Street lawyer women, they don't like those guys. I don't know where right. there's that where, where you're grouping all women together in what they find attractive. Well, okay. Uh, the moment you tell me about the biker girl finding certain men attractive, I just automatically assume that she's really, really ugly and she does not have a really well-developed personality. And so because of that, she cannot attract a higher value man. And so she settles for the biker dude who is her equivalent. Wait, are you saying that all biker, biker girls are ugly? Um, well, if you say that the majority of men with really muscular bodies are not really devoting themselves to intelligence, then I think it's perfectly fair of me to say that the majority of biker chicks are not exactly devoting themselves to uh, personal hygiene and developing a sense of femininity that men find attractive. Well, to be technical, I didn't say that they weren't devoting themselves to intelligence based upon my knowledge of IQ uh, and genetics. I'm not sure that it's possible to, to, don't, to devote oneself to intelligence. I just said that there's opportunity costs. Um, right, exactly. But do do goth girls, right? So goth girls like a particular style of anemic looking Robert Smith type man. And when I was a uh, a kid, um, skinny rockers was like the big thing. Uh, yes. And you know, Brian May, who's like this giant spider with uh, <laughs> like snakes for fingers. Uh, and he weighs, you know, all of 12 pounds soaking wet, you know, 13, actually 35 pounds if he gels his, his hair. But, uh, you know, uh, Freddie Mercury was, was skinny and, and didn't work out, and he was considered to be a real sex symbol. Uh, back in the day, of course, um, uh, you look at somebody like um, Humphrey Bogart, who was, a, you know, a skinny, non-exercised smoker guy, was considered to be a huge sex, uh, sexy man for, for women. I mean, these things all change, right? I mean, so when men used to work outdoors and outdoor work was lower, paid yeah. a tan was considered unattractive right so, so uh, women used women used to try to be as as pale as possible because it meant you could stay and spend your life indoors which meant that you had money which meant that you had intelligence which meant you had smart eggs and all that right 
And um, then when 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 men began to work inside, then then being able to have the leisure to to go outside and go on vacation and get a tan became a sign of wealth, and suddenly a tan became was in. When food was scarce, being slightly overweight or significantly overweight was considered attractive. Now that food is plentiful, uh, then being uh, underweight is considered attractive. When physical labor was the norm, then muscular men were showing low status. But now that you yes. have to pay for a gym membership in general, and you have to have the leisure to be able to exercise because most men are working in offices, now muscles have become uh, attractive because it's now a sign of higher status to have muscles, whereas you know, 50 or 75 years ago, it was a sign of lower status. Like having muscles was a sign of lower status. So I don't know that... Um, that you can say, well, this is what women like or this is what women don't like. I mean, whatever shows higher status for particular reproductive strategies. And remember, these reproductive strategies are all a big bell curve, right? And lots of women are kind of in the middle, willing to go both ways, at least according to Katy Perry. And uh, there is much more stuff on the extremes. I'll be done in a second, then I'll I'll, I'll be quiet for a while. But um, this, uh, this, this, I, so... There are women, of course, and there are even K-selected women who at the moment of ovulation are going to look for our selected characteristics, short-term mating strategies, higher testosterone, because higher testosterone, testosterone inhibits the immune system. And so having higher testosterone is it shows that you're strong enough to even with a depressed immune system, you're still healthy and all that. So, um, And of course, yeah. what you're doing is uh, you are showing a dominance in your being willing to discombobulate and confuse women. Uh, you are showing uh, dominance. In other words, you're showing I'm not a pussy beggar, I'm not a white knight, uh, I'm not what they call a mangina or a simp or all these kind. You're saying, listen, I'm 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 a dominant person relative to women. Women will find that attractive because that would signal that you would go out and get resources for uh, for these women, right? That you would then be dominant and aggressive with other uh, men, and therefore you would get um, resources for uh, for for the women. And uh, so I, I don't think that you can say this is what women find attractive as a whole, uh, because it, it changes very much depending on subculture. Uh, you know, there are some African tribes where having a vastly elongated neck is considered the height of sexual attraction. And uh, so women, uh, you know, put these hoops around their neck and become these giraffe women, and then they can't even get around without these hoops. Uh, in the Victorian age, having this, this incredibly narrow corset uh, sorry, this incredibly narrow waist. And so they'd have these whalebone corsets that would crush women's internal organs and reduce yes. the strength of their abdominal muscles to the point where a lot of them died during childbirth just because they'd worn these ridiculous corsets that give them these 18-inch waists and, and, and rot away their, uh, uh, their abdominal muscles so they can't push when it comes time to having a baby. So what is attractive? I don't know. I mean, I think you can say, well, women find this attractive or women don't find that attractive. But if you're thinking, if you think you're referring to all women, I think you're sadly mistaken. I think you'd be surprised at how much selection you're bringing to bear on the equation. Okay, that's it. I'll I'll be quiet because I had a long speech. But go ahead. Thank you. Um, my own personal sense is that this time is unique. Uh, this is the first time. Like women have never been more free. And so when you go back in time to African societies, or when you go back in time to Victorian societies, you had a lot of women that were caged. But today they're free and they want everything. And I know that a lot of men, myself included, like I was like this for the longest time, I would feel intimidated and sad at the fact that women wanted everything. Like I felt 
rejected and left out and confused because I just wanted them to love me for my intelligence and my philosophical rigor when I was acquiring it. But now I realize that everything that a woman wants, it's beautiful when I acquire it. Like there's a beauty when I work out. There's a joy that happens that I didn't experience before. Um, when I add, you know, when I turn the number of squats I can do from 25 to 29, there's a joy in that that's all mine. And so, and so I know that men have this sense of being scared or of being rejected or of being left out. But if a man pursues hypergamy or embraces hypergamy by understanding what the majority of healthy women want in pursuing it, he becomes better. And I don't know the degree to which there are a lot of people in the world or men in general who don't want to better themselves along certain lines because they are, because they, they feel like they're betraying themselves. Like they feel like they're not being who they, who they really are if they were to like learn to work out or they feel like they're not being who they really are if they were to learn pickup artistry. And I think men would be better if they stopped worrying about things like that and just pursued a workout program and pursued learning how to flirt with women. Like if they just pursued those things with gusto without worrying about whether they're going to be rejected or not, they themselves would get better. What do you, what do you mean by get better? I don't know what that means in this context. Uh, with with exercise, there is so much more joy. To no, 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 I, not, not exercise. There's lots of great reasons to exercise. And I've been literally pumping exercise in this show for years. But in terms Beautiful. of like uh, learning how to manipulate women into having a positive response, how is that making men better as a whole? It makes men understand that what they thought they knew about women was wrong. I would so again, you're putting women, all women, into into a big blob and and judging them all as having the same desires and preferences. Or no, I'm saying that um, if a man assumes that women are a certain way and doesn't challenge that assumption by behaving differently, he doesn't know whether women really are that way. And so he what doesn't. What way know are all women supposed to be? Are you saying that my wife is exactly the same as some? screechy skank who hits people with chairs in mcdonald's i don't like are you putting them all in the same category and they're all one big blob absolutely not i think that your wife is an apex woman like your wife is the exact type of woman that every man every philosophical man should want okay then 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 you, what you need to do is is not say this is what women want or you can learn to understand women and so on right because you're putting women into this big blob that says, well, this is, you know, once you understand this, you understand all women. And it's like, no, I don't think you do. Because I'm concerned that you're not recognizing the degree to which approaching women in a manipulative way, and I'm not saying it's evil, right? I mean, you're just playing or whatever. But approaching women in a manipulative way is not selecting a certain kind of woman, but you think it applies to all women. And that's not true. You will, you will be, you, women who are easily confused or who are manipulative themselves will be intrigued. Women with deep self-knowledge will look at you and say, he is a confusing, manipulative guy. That is a real, that's a real turnoff. 
So this is why if you, if you want if you want to do pickup artistry, it is going to filter the women who respond to you. It is going to filter the women who respond to you. And I think you're missing that because you're saying this is all women and it's not. It's biologically driven. So you're saying it's all women again. Hmm. I do think that it varies across ages. So the younger the woman is, the more she'll want that give and take, that power struggle. But when a woman well, unless she's thirty and working at McDonald's, or but yeah, okay, right. But, so, but when she gets older, then she'll want less of that. And so, so when she gets on, older and wiser and smarter, then it doesn't work. Well, no. If you want to look at it optimistically, then when she gets older, smarter, and wiser, then it doesn't work. If you want to look at it pessimistically, it's the moment that she loses her looks and can no longer compete with younger women who are prettier. That's when she suddenly wants a man who doesn't behave that way. I feel like the truth is somewhere in the middle. So all younger women respond to this manipulation. Um, most of them do. Um, if they're okay. lucky right. enough. Uh, I, okay. So not all. That's all I'm saying. No. Not all. Because what you, if you, when you start saying all women, right? You you got upset with me earlier, and you know I can understand why. But you push right. back when you said, but there are exceptions to this, right? Yeah, some guys work out and have great self-knowledge. You can't say that's every all guys. And I'm like, that's fair. That's true. I wasn't saying that, but it's, it's true. There are exceptions. And so what I'm pointing out is let's say that 90% of, of young women, I don't know if this is true or not, but let's just say 90% of young women are too clueless to even know that this is a manipulative crap that's being pulled on them. And they respond to yep. it like, they manipulate back, right? So what you're doing is you're 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 selecting out the discriminating, intelligent, self-aware young women who are going to look at you and say, "What? <laughs> some some guy in his late thirties is trying to use some lame pickup crap with me? Like, what a loser, right? You're selecting those women out of your dating pool." I don't agree with that because I think that uh, when women are younger, they for the most part do not have the social wisdom to know that those things are true. And so my argument would be that if I were to just not hit on women in that age group in this particular way, then I would be abandoning those women to a man who would hit on them that way. And that man is not nearly going to be as philosophically rigorous as I will be. Um, are you saying you're manipulating them so that less philosophical men don't get to manipulate them? I will say that if a, a woman who is young, who is smart and intelligent, but is not intelligent enough to recognize that certain pickup artistry techniques are bad, is not hit on by someone like me, she's going to be hit on by someone else. So you're, you're helping them. If she wants to be helped, she can be helped. If not, she won't. Now, do you think? Do you think? Uh, do you think that if this young woman grows up with a father who's not manipulative, uh, who's, not who's honest sure. and and curious and and open and um, connected with her and and doesn't jerk her around or pretend to be something he's not or isn't confusing or whatever, right? Do you think I, if a young woman grows up, let me finish, do you think if a young woman grows up with a father like that, and that has been her experience for 20 years of dealing with men, 
that you come along with this smoke and mirrors crap that she's not going to just see that immediately is like, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not sure. I accept that that's a strong possibility, but I don't know if that's true in every case. Okay, let's say it's it's more likely. I mean, my daughter spots manipulative people like that, and she's been doing it since yes. she was four. Yes. Right, and, and doesn't want to have anything to do with them. So what I'm pointing right. out is, again, your approach of lying, manipulating, misrepresenting, and confusing women works on women who are used to being lied to, confused, manipulated, and bewildered. Right. It's, it's attractive I, to them because that's the template that they have experienced growing up. You are selecting yeah. the most poorly raised women in, into your circle. And I mean, yeah, I mean, you can go fishing with dynamite, but don't call yourself an expert. Um, but at the same time, when we study peaceful parenting, we conclude that very few people are parented peacefully. Like when we factor in spanking very and emotional abuse then I don't know. Like, it, it saddens me. Like, I ask myself, what percent of children who are my niece's age were parented peacefully from birth? And my very depressing answer is, like, maybe 1%. Right, but like, that's my entire point, is that because quality people are rare, it's not a good idea to use strategies that keep them as far away from you as humanly possible, right? It's like, you know, it's really hard to find a tiger in the woods. No, that's a bad example. Let me let me rephrase that. There's a bird out there that's incredibly rare and easily startled. I'm going to go hunt for them while yodeling through an air horn. Well, you're never going to find them because you're driving them away from you. The rarer they are, the more inviting you need to be to those rare people. And if you come across like manipulative and false and misrepresenting yourself and, and uh, uh, confuse it, like it's, let's say it's only 1%. I don't know the exact number, but let's say it's only 1%. Well, shouldn't you be doing everything you can to eliminate the 99% so that you can get to the 1%? Whereas I'm concerned that you're saying, let's make sure that we drive away the 1% so I can be as attractive as possible to the 99% that I don't really want. Well, no. To me, that hinges on the question, do you think the 99% of people are permanently damaged such that no interaction with a philosophically rigorous, virtuous man can change them over time? No, I think that they're at your level. That's why you want them. That's why you're selecting the good people out so that you don't have to feel behind them, that you don't have to feel lower, right? Because you've got a ways to go. You're nine months into this conversation, so you're a babe in the woods, right? I mean, you're in your salad days. And I say this as a guy who's been doing philosophy for over 30 years, right? You're nine months into this hypergamy stuff, so you're new. So you've got a lot of growth to go. And look, I have a lot of growth to go, too. I've just got 29-plus years on you as far as this kind of stuff goes. And so right. you're, you're young and you're early in this kind of thinking. And so you, you're not ready for somebody who's been raised to think deeply and, and have self-knowledge and be honest and open and vulnerable and communicative and, and uh, empathetic and, and sensitive and, and strong and courageous, right? You're just not ready for someone like that. And so you want to hang around in the lower 
species because you're not ready to match up with somebody who's been raised in, in a high quality way because you're nine months into turning this around for yourself. And I don't mean this in any negative or way. I just make it, it's how it, it fits. So that's why you want to try and fix people because you've still got a lot of fixing to do with yourself. Or grow together. We yeah, grow that, together. that could certainly happen. That could certainly happen. But, um, but because you're leading them the wrong direction to begin with, the odds of you guys growing together are very low because you're starting off things by lying and manipulating then thinking you're going to grow in wisdom and knowledge together is very unlikely because the women are going to respond the strongest to you when you lie and manipulate them. They, the women are going to respond the strongest to you who are the most steeped in lying and manipulation. So you, you're like saying, let me find the most dishonest person in the room and then I'm going to work with them to try and be honest. But if you're selecting for the opposite of what you want to achieve, your odds of getting there are tiny. Right, like I mean, if you if you're a, a a basketball coach, you can choose a tall person or you can choose a really short person. Uh, and then if you choose a short person, I guess there's a tiny chance they could become a good basketball player. But why not just start with a tall person and work from there? In other words, if you want to grow towards honesty, openness, and clearly you'd rather not be manipulative but be honest in your relationships with people. So if you start with honesty, and a woman is intrigued by your capacity for honesty, openness, directness and not playing games, if a woman is intrigued and attracted to that, then you can grow in the direction of becoming more honest and open with each other over time. But you're selecting the exact opposite direction. So what do we do with the 99% of people who weren't raised peacefully? Well, are you asking me? I mean, I'm the guy putting out thousands of podcasts for free <laughs> so that people can learn well, how no, to be raised peacefully and getting them into therapy and all that, right? I mean, you right. don't don't ask me. I'm the guy doing just about the most on the planet to to help with these things. I mean, you could ask yourself, but I don't. But don't ask me. Okay. Sorry. So when I, it sounds like you're telling me to abandon those people who weren't raised peacefully. Well, no, <laughs> I never said anything like that. And again, you're having a conversation with yourself rather Sorry. than me. But because you're still very young in this stuff, you don't know that. What I'm saying is that. Um, if you are honest with people, I'm not saying abandon everyone who's dishonest. What I'm saying is that you have, I think, a, um, a, a reasonable ethical obligation to bring honesty to people because it's the right thing to do and also because it has very beneficial effects for you. You don't get to bang confused and disoriented women with daddy issues, but you might get a chance to connect with someone of real quality. At the same time, those people are hyper rare. And so I, I... Exactly. So you have to be as honest as possible so that you can find them. The hyper rarity doesn't mean lower your standards. It means raise your standards. Honest people being rare doesn't mean lie to people. It means be honest with people so you can get rid of the liars and find the honest people. My cynical response is that um, the honesty that women feel when they're like 29, 30, is mostly driven by the loss of looks. Um, are you familiar with the idea that a woman's sexual peak is uh, 23 and a man's sexual peak is 36? Well, I've, I've heard the 23 thing, that after 22, uh, men's uh, sexual interest in women declines. Yeah, I understand that. No, I also understand um, the, the, the frustration that a lot of people in the manosphere have with women where they've 
been trying to date these women from the age of 18 to 28, and they can't get the most attractive women because the women are off uh, banging all of the disreputable guys, <clears throat> drummers that they can find. And yes. then when they've been used up and tossed aside like a bunch of alpha discarded Kleenexes out the window, uh, they're all like, uh, well, I'm ready to settle down with a really good man now, and I'm not that much into looks. And it's because their own sexual value, uh, they, they tried to get an alpha using their highest point of sexual market value. They were unable to keep an alpha. An alpha was willing to use them for sex, but wasn't willing to commit to them because they were too unstable. They were too needy. They were too uh, uh, without ambition. Uh, they were uh, inert. Uh, they were merely attractive, which an alpha might do for a weekend, but isn't going to do for a lifetime. And then when right. they've been used up and discarded and heartbroken and, and are filled with various bacteria uh, and and ancient sperm, and basically they've got enough man juice hanging off their caves like they're getting stalagmites and stalactites, then they're willing to settle down with the beta, at which point the data says, yeah, sloppy seconds I can live with. Sloppy 20 seconds, mm, not so much. Do you understand the hypocrisy involved where when she was at her sexual peak, she was able to pursue whatever she wanted with reckless abandon and the society didn't fall apart. But when a man reaches his sexual peak of 36 and is not attached to anyone, the moment he starts dating women who are like 22, 23, the entire society surrounds him and says, no, you can't do that, man. You got to date women your own age because if you start dating women who are younger and prettier, our entire civilization is going to fall apart. You know, our civilization is founded upon men like you marrying women in their 30s and ensuring that these women are well provided for into her old age. Well, I don't I don't know that anyone's ever said to me, I was a single guy in my 30s. I never got a lecture from any kind of shadowy patriarchy star chamber saying that I had to marry bitter women in their 30s for society to continue. I, I I've never heard that. And, and I'm not sure where that's coming from. Where did you hear that? Um, I feel like I read too many extremist blogs then because my, I'm, well, have you heard I, it outside of extremist blogs? That's my question. Yeah, that is my question. Um, I've had her, I've had her, heard phrases like age appropriate. So for example, as a 39 year old, if I suddenly start dating a woman who's 25, uh, a lot of people are going to have a negative emotional reaction to that. Uh, they'll say things well, like, yeah, but uh, look, I mean, hang on, hang on. Do you, do you remember? Um, I, I can't remember what wrinkled old wheelchair bound multi billionaire um, Anna Nicole Smith ended up hooking up with. Uh, oh, gotcha. But, yes. uh, do, I mean, do you remember that? I mean, did you look at that and think, like, ew? Uh, yes, I did, because it was a transparent, uh, it was a transparent acquisition of money. Right. A... And if a 39-year-old woman, sorry, 39-year-old guy goes out with a 25-year-old woman, that's a transparent acquisition of, of vagina. Right? I mean, so it, it's you in the same way that the Hugh Hefner, I mean, do, do you think that if Hugh Hefner wasn't Hugh Hefner, all these babes would be like, I can't wait to straddle this Nazgul. I mean, this is not going to happen, right? Uh, and so right. Um, the, 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 it's, it's because it's such a trans, it's it's too obvious in its its sexual um, politics, right? And so uh, one of the reasons why people have a somewhat of a distaste for wide age ranges is it's too obvious that you don't care about the woman, you only care about her fertility or her sexual attractiveness or whatever, in the same way that Anna Nicole Smith probably didn't care too much 
uh, about this, uh, you know, uh, four days dead George Burns character that she married because uh, it's clearly just about the money. Uh, and so it's just kind of gross. Uh, and, uh, and also uh, marriages tend to work the best when people are closer in ages for reasons that I'm sure are too obvious to go in here. So if you want a stable, long-lasting relationship, whether it's marriage or not, it tends to be um, that uh, the closer in age you are, um, the, the better off it's, uh, it's going to be as a whole. So there's, there's some pretty good wisdom in, in age-appropriate dating. I don't think that's true. Um, I read a study that if you, if you show men faces of women and if you show women faces of men, and you ask them which faces do you find attractive, the men are always saying like 21, 22, but the women are always saying two years older than I am right now, right? And I I'm think sorry, I don't that understand. I don't understand what looking at pictures has to do with a relationship. I mean, unless you're having a, a relationship with a picture, which I guess a lot of people do, I guess more screens now than pictures when I was younger, I don't understand what right. you're trying to prove. We, there are studies that show that, that when age gets wider, uh, in in marital relations, uh, the, the likelihood of divorce increases. Um, I would also say that uh, you don't know whether that's because of their natural compatibility or whether it's because society drills into their head that that's bad. There is literally well, I, no. no if, if, if no, look, if if people believed that it was bad, they wouldn't get married. I mean, they get married because they believe that it's good, and I don't think that that would suddenly change after they married and cause them to get divorced. Hmm. That is interesting. Like, if, if a guy's own... racist, he's not going to marry someone of a different race and then divorce her later, right? I mean, if he's racist, he's not going to marry someone of a different race to begin with. Right, I understand that. But I feel like, uh, to use the racist example, um, in a non-racial society, a you know, two people of different races can ma marry and be fine. But in a racist society, those same two people getting married are not fine because their society is racist. And we don't know the degree to which the racism of society caused them to split up. Well, yes, except that the, the, the split up occurs not when people are 40 years apart, right? What they used to call a May-December marriage. Uh, if, if, if I remember rightly, this is off the top of my I think it's when it's like five or six years apart. In other words, not at a point where people would say that's gross. But the, 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 the differences in success rates of marriage with age spread occurs long before people would find it objectionable. So I think it's more to do with lack of similarity in life experiences and so on. Like, you know, as, as you as a guy who's almost 40 is, is how much are you going to have in common with a woman 15 years younger than you? How much would I have in common with a woman 15 years younger than me? Other than we both think she's hot. I like the non-commonality. Um, as, uh, like to me, I like someone who is like younger and happier because it's not like... Wait, 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 wait hang on, hang on. So if you like the non-commonality, then you basically flip a coin and you either go for a 25-year-old or a 55-year-old. Is that correct? I don't like the non-commonality in older women, though. Okay, so it's not non-commonality. It's youth. Come on, man. Right, this this almost isn't even hard. Right, it's youth, prettiness, happiness, uh, possibility. <laughs> okay. It's youth and prettiness. It is. I, I mean, I get that, right? And of course, the other thing that, that is, to be fair, a 25-year-old woman who's single is in a different emotional place than a 55-year-old woman who's single. Right. Right, that's the happiness thing I was pointing out. 
Yeah, and of course, a um, a car that's been on the lot for five minutes is different than a car that's been on the lot for two years, right? Right. It's uh, there's a joy there. Well, yeah. I mean, just there's a uh, yeah. Uh, well, I don't know about joy. I wouldn't say that all twenty five year old women. Again, you got this big blob thing going on, right? Uh, all twenty five year old women are, are joyful, um, but. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely an enthusiasm, and uh, if a woman who's who wants to get married has not gotten married by the the, the time of fifty five, um, that's that's a, a huge failure, right? Whereas a woman who wants to get married who's not married by twenty five has not experienced that huge failure yet, right? right. Plus, fifty five year old women can't have kids, so if you marry a twenty five year old, you've got some time uh, who, who with with um, with a woman uh, who can give you kids, whereas 55-year-old man. Are you in a relationship at the moment? No, um, I just got broken up with last week. Was this a woman um, you picked up with using uh, pickup artistry? Um, it was a woman who I injected pickup artistry into the equation, yes. I wasn't only pickup artistry based, I was also very philosophical and uh, open as well. Like we discussed things like her childhood, and I was able to discuss those things with her in a way that you taught me. And so it was a comment. If you don't mind me asking, and you don't have to talk about it if it's last, how long was the relationship, by the way? It was uh, three months. Okay, so it's not like massive tragedy, though it's certainly sad. Um, and why did she it's break up with you? She found someone better. Uh, she found someone uh, a little bit younger than me. Um, much more happy, uh, more established, and more caring. Like she, uh, she told me a story about how he helped children in a specific way, and I was floored by how successful he was at that. You know, so to me, he, she found someone better. Right. And she says things like, "If I." Um, you know, that I still value as a person. And if I had settled for someone worse than you, then I can understand how you would feel like this is a disservice to who you are. But I swear that he's better. And so with me, because I want to embrace hypergamy, I am sad for sure because she was the best woman I've ever been with. But at the same time, I'm energized because I met her when I was devoting myself to this change in personality. Um, well, look, I'm I'm sorry. I mean, I, if she's the best woman you ever met, I'm I'm genuinely sorry. That's very, very hard. That's very heartbreaking. It was but, sad, and I I don't mean to you know to dance on your broken heart, and I don't mean that at all. But I just wanted to point out that you're getting abs, and she dumped you. No, she's a person that she found to be of of more moral or substantial or philosophical quality, right? So the fact that you she, were aiming for abs didn't, right? Oh, if you, no, if that's you not spent how, the time doing the stuff that this other guy did rather than getting abs, she might still be with you, right? No, um, she never lambasted my character. She never did. No, you said she the other guy said, was a step up, like kinder and, and more successful and right. Right. That doesn't mean I don't have any character and it doesn't mean that my I never, said, I never said that. I never said I never said that. Dude, you've got to have conversations with me, not this guy in your head, right? 
I never said it. it doesn't mean you have any character. What I'm saying is that you said that women find abs really attractive, and so you oh, put time and effort into doing to working out, and she left you for a guy. I don't know. Does he have more abs? Does he like extra abs? Absolutely. He has like abs on his elbow. No, he's much more physically fit than I am, and uh, his job puts him in a better position to care for people. And so he's physically fitter than me, and he's younger than me, and he has better character than me. All right. And so I'm sad, but I'm also, I'm not devastated. Like, I would be devastated if she traded me for someone worse. Like, to me, trading me for someone worse would be a sign that this whole pursuit that I'm doing isn't helpful at all. But she and was it a, uh, you know, I get it. it. It confirms the theory for you, and, and I'm not to dis disagree with the theory. But, um, and were you uh, in a monogamous relationship with her? Um, we were not monogamous because we were far apart. Um, it was a distance thing. Oh, no, 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 so no, 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 no. You were not monogamous because you chose not to be monogamous. There's nothing to do with distance right. and monogamy that goes hand in hand. Lots of people have monogamous long distance relationships, right? Right. And I don't think, um, she's like so intelligent and so attractive that I don't think she was willing to wait for me. Like she wasn't willing to wait for me to, uh, you know, just acquire what I need to acquire and then move closer to her. She just wanted, uh, she wanted a joyous relationship now. And I was in no position to give her that joyous relationship now. And what, why and because, uh, I haven't embraced hypergamy. That's my number one thing. Like, rather than exercising, I would pursue video games. Uh, rather than pouring my time into growing my business, I would, um, I would be avoidant. Um, I feel an incredible sense of shame over the way that I spent my 20s and my 30s because I imagine the life that I could have had if I had embraced hypergamy earlier. If I oh, had you mean if you had got the kind of resources and status that would have gotten you the best woman as you as you see it right absolutely absolutely um do you do you not i mean and i'm just curious what do you think what, what do you think kept that knowledge from you because i i mean when i was a kid i mean rich muscle guys were what i mean high status like all the women loved all the high status guys. I shouldn't say that. You know what? I was just generalizing, accusing you of generalizing, and I apologize for that. But there was a significant proportion of women who got hot and bothered by, you know, juggered, funny-faced Prince Charles and stuff like that. And right. so when I was younger, the idea that, you know, playing video games was going to do something to make me more attractive to women would never have crossed my mind. I'm just curious... Right. Like, do you think it was hidden from you? And you're, you know, younger than I am by um, quite a bit. And um, why do you think that you spent a lot of time avoiding the knowledge of hypergamy, which if hypergamy is female nature, then knowledge of hypergamy must be male nature, right? Yes, it is. Yes. And how to combat it, what to do about it. That is male nature. Um, so but me, how, how did you not get it? Like what blocks your male nature in your 20s? Um, the way that I was raised as a kid, um, like my A score is four. Like I had a really bad childhood. Um, there was also this sense of, it was the lack of guarantee, you know, like I could pour my energy into 
growing my business, building my body, learning how to flirt. I can build my energy into all of those things, but there's no guarantee that I will be happy with the result. Like there's no guarantee that a good woman will be attracted to me, appreciate me for the effort that I'm putting forth and love me for that effort put in. And so I let the illusion that the fact that there is no guarantee matter way more than it should, way more than it should. Now my So what do you think made you, um, sorry to interrupt, what do you think um, influenced you to be risk averse in this way? My upbringing. My upbringing. No, I get that. You talked about your, what in your, I should be more specific, what in your upbringing? My own, my own father. Like my father is the most risk averse and bitter and angry man I've ever known. And he withdraws. Like that has been his entire, that's him. He withdraws. Oh, and that's what you and said with this woman, that you were avoidant and also when you were younger, right? Say that again? Well, you went earlier when you were, I can't remember if you were talking about your 20s or your relationship with the woman who left you last week, but um, you talked about being avoidant. Yeah, in my 20s, I was highly avoidant, highly depressed. And, and so what is your, how does the avoidance show up for your dad? What does it look like? Oh, my God. Um, I still get nervous whenever I see an appliance break because an appliance breaking when I was a kid would lead to father yelling, would lead to mother extremely upset to the point where we wouldn't be eating dinner for days because she would just refuse to cook. And so I wow. am still, yeah, it was horrible stuff. It was terrible. So let me, let me say, so, so like an iron breaks or an iron doesn't start or something like that. Yeah, or, or like a car doesn't run well, or a microwave is like overheating, um, a toilet is clogged, like that sort of stuff would inevitably lead to a, an explosive fight because if my father couldn't fix it in two minutes, he would start yelling and yelling and yelling and he would drive the entire family against him. Um, and what would he yell about? Like, would it be oh, unrelated would, stuff or... Yes, it would be blaming people for moving his, uh, for moving his stuff. Um, for years, he still does this now. He will take a really important item and put it in a place where everybody goes. And he will leave it there for days. And he knows, because he's been married to my mother for a god-awful long time, that my mother will leave it there for a while. But eventually, she'll just get tired of like seeing the gigantic mess there, and she'll clean up everything. And so the moment she cleans up everything, he mystically needs the thing that he put over there. And that's a gigantic fight where he's like blaming her, blaming us. And so I've seen that play out so many times in my childhood. Like that is his aggressive avoidance where he can't do simple things like keep a clean environment and solve problems with equanimity because he just can't. He just can't. And he's never going to change. I'm sort of reminded my mother. Um, I, <clears throat> mistakes, breakages, failures. People have a very visceral reaction to those. I mean, I remember <clears throat> my mom. When when something didn't work, she would like 
throw it at nothing in this life works you know it would it would become this like hysterical thing like some individual thing didn't work like i remember she'd turn on a light and you know sometimes you turn on i don't think this is as true anymore but you know back in the 60s and 70s you turn on a light and poof right it would break and go out right It'd be, and it would make a little sound and it would just die right the filament i guess would would break yes and she'd be like sobbing, like nothing in this life works. And it's like, and I, I, I remember just like even as a kid thinking like, it's a light bulb. Yes. Um, like what weird fetishistic exaggerated hysterical nonsense is going on here where suddenly the sun won't rise tomorrow because a light bulb broke. Yes, I know. Um, whenever you tell that story, I identify with it because that was my father. Except instead of like just sobbing in the corner and most of the time leaving you alone, like I know that being left alone by a parent sucks, but compared, but with my father, he would always, you know, verbally attack my mother who would just snap. And oh, yeah, no, so that would just, come later because later it would be somebody else's yeah. fault that, that something yeah, exactly. broke. Exactly. And so I empathize with that. Like I understand deep in my soul what you went through because I went through that too. And, and it's terrifying for kids, of course, because these are the people who are supposed to be keeping you safe. These are the people who are supposed to be keeping you secure. Uh, these are the people who are supposed to be the rock that you can lean on and the soft place that you can land. And they're freaking the fuck out over nothing. The toaster yeah, put off some sparks and suddenly it's like the end of the world. Exactly. And your response to that was to... Uh, was to grow the uh, greatest philosophical show in the world. Like you... I don't know that I can... I don't know that I can credit the show with my mom getting hysterical over light bulbs, but I'm sure that there's some element involved. Because I, I was always just astounded to, to look at this giant infant with dyed hair. I was just astounded to look at this and say, what on earth could possibly motivate someone to be so hysterical over something so unimportant? Right. There is something very important about the world that I simply do not understand and cannot figure out. And I knew I needed to. Yes. You dug down deep inside and you said, uh, this will not happen. That's what you did. You said, in my sphere, this will not happen. And you worked your and damn You've got a strong emotion in your voice right now, right? Oh, yeah. Because I know what it's like. Okay, so what, what, what's, what's connecting with you then? The, like I compare the time that I wasted my life to the time that you didn't waste yours. Oh, I've done some wasting. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I'm not uh, super productive all day. I've done some wasting. Not to the degree that I have, sir. You sure? I played Spear of Destiny. <laughs> nah, I, I'm ashamed of like a lot of things I did. Like I'm ashamed of my avoidance. I'm ashamed of the time that I put into video games. I wish I had read more. Wish I had worked mm. out more. Wish I had grown my business more. But it would have been very costly for you to do that, right? It would have been. It would have been. It would, because would if, have if you, there's, you know, people talk about this glass ceiling for women. I don't think that's true. I think the real sound barrier is breaking through the ceiling of our parents. Hell yes. Absolutely. Right. I mean, the moment that we blow past 
the limitations of our parents. That is the real sound barrier. That's where all progress comes from, like it or not. And that is where most people's bodies get shredded. Like most, most, most people who try and fly through that sound barrier just turn into red mist. And this is why we shy back from the, the, from the sound barrier, the growth barrier of surmounting, of breaking through the ice of history that our parents' heights was the limit. <laughs> breaking through that like some ICBM coming out from a nuclear sub up through the permafrost, up through the ice. That is the great challenge. And, and this is where we falter. There's this great uh, movie with Harrison Ford, the fugitive, I think he's standing on top of, he's going about to make this big jump and his hand shakes. And there's that, this falter. The movie with Steve McQueen or a guy's walking by with a glass of water or a glass of juice that Steve McQueen thinks he's going to give it to him. And he just sort of half reaches out and then doesn't. And there's this, this terrifying falter, this vertigo, this, am I actually going to do it or not? Mm. And that is really a terrifying moment that is the do or die moment and we can spend a lot of time you know there's a line from my novel the god of atheists where i say is you know as children as children certain types of people as children they constantly lose their mittens and and gloves and hats and scarves and boots and keys and as adults they can misplace entire decades yeah it's nuts and this 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 if you, if you were raised by a hysterical, passive-aggressive, reactionary, resentful, unmoved, unmotivated, bullying kind of personality structure, then doing the opposite, breaking beyond that, going through that, passing through that great sound barrier that shreds most airplanes of, of the soul, that is a very, very difficult thing. And we can falter, we can stand before that and say, I don't even know I have to jump, but there's this incredible resistance to breaking yes. through history and going to the undiscovered country, going to the land unexplored, where not only is there freedom, but there is terror and there is also hatred. Right, because your parents faced the same barrier, right? The same sound barrier, the same ceiling. And they faltered and they fell back. And if you say, fuck it, afterburner time, we are going through, baby. There's great resentment from those who have faltered before the great generational ceiling. Yes. And if you Absolutely. break through it and you burst through it and you show what will can do what genuine will can do because there is only free will where there is willpower and there is only willpower when there is a rational measurement of costs and benefits which is why philosophy and self-knowledge is the source the foundation for the rocket of willpower that breaks us through the ceilings of history and those who have faltered and fallen before us do not cheer our passage those who have yeah. failed to grow do not cheer our growth. And uh, the, the huge amount of resistance and danger, historically outgrowing the tribe generally got you killed. There's a great sense of danger in surmounting the customs of the age. Because if you disbelieved in the gods of history, you generally were next up for human sacrifice. And if you uh, disagreed with the standards of your society, uh, your eggs would not be available. <laughs> the eggs would not be made available to you. There's no baker's dozen for you to spray into. And so yes. that is 
that that faltering you say in your 20s you know that faltering before breaking through the limitations that everyone before you has failed to break through when you, your parents have a history going back to the cousins of the apes of people who failed to break through the ceiling of history who failed to break through parental dictums and social norms and and to think rationally and critically and grow beyond so the fact that you would falter in your 20s is entirely understandable and I hope that you can find it in your heart to forgive yourself for that or to recognize that if it only took you 10 years to begin to break through what has not occurred in your gene pool for the past 2 billion that's still pretty fucking great it is and um you know there's a part of me that admires it but I feel like breaking through is just the beginning like it's just the beginning um there's so much joy which means that you can you can't praise yourself for justly earned accolades right so you're I the kind of guy who's like gold wait where's platinum platinum wait where's diamond diamond wait where's unobtainium it's four more, miles under more, the ground more. where people are down there arguing about geolibertarianism so right. don't make every finish line a starting block or the race will never end and your heart will explode and you will live a life of of fretful in the end purposeless motion right did you understand that that if you've broken through parental limitations and you have surmounted history you are probably the first in your gene pool to do it right. and if the moment you say well that's just the beginning it's like wait what the last two two billion years wasn't <laughs> enough to celebrate the passage the the, the moving beyond of you just broke through the uh, the uh, ice crust of history you, you're the mm. first you're the first of your fish species to walk on land for god's sakes yeah and you're like but there are mountains it's like first on land first with legs mm. come on mr lungfish give yourself some props but there's the moon i haven't got to the moon yet it's like come on <laughs> give yourself some props don't look mm. at what is lost or if you're going to look at what is what was lost relative to those who came before you who didn't win anything and who lost worse than you can even conceive of because it never changed mm. because if you can take pride in breaking through the parental and cultural barrier the ceiling and how many people actually do and how many people when they actually do don't want to immediately crawl back as if they can the ice right. forms over you when you go through it there's no return ticket doesn't come back no coming back doesn't mean you can't hang out with people and so on but you can never ever be back through that ice in the way that you were before so you've broken through first in your generations first in your gene pool to break through and if you say well but i'm it's only the beginning mm, it's okay to rest and applaud yourself mm. because this kind of breaking through is the entire progress of the species and so getting back to the theme you made a good argument we lost the feeling we lost the feeling didn't we there we just lost the feeling and i'm sorry if i speechified too much but when no, we were talking sorry. earlier and you were quite moved what were you 
I was moved because I do feel the accomplishment, but I feel, I think it's because I'm like, I'm going to be 40 soon. I feel like if I was like 24 and I felt like I had all this time ahead of me, I would celebrate it more. But as an older person who's just waking up, I feel the waking up and I know that it's permanent, but I also feel like that sense that time is running out. That I got to move. I don't know. Like I, uh, it's it's fifty fifty, or it's like sixty forty in favor. Um, the negative argument is that uh, because I've spent so much time with my my niece, um, I've gotten some of the parenting experience with her, and I can devote my time to making sure that she grows into adulthood with me at her side. Like that's the argument against uh, the argument for is uh, that protecting his niece is not the same thing as having a child. And I'm going to assume that you don't do any of this manipulative stuff with your niece. Um, no, no. Um, with my niece, it's, it's just straight up. I can't apologize. Now she's going to grow up and, and and when she grows up, what she can think of a pickup artist, if you're straight with her. The boy that she's dating is the nicest guy I've ever met. And it's, uh, and it's funny because, like, she's, uh, you know, she's, like, in her teens. And you always get those, like, fearful stereotypes that they're going to, like, chase, uh, you know, like a really alpha, you know, asshole guy. And I met this guy and he was, like, really well respectful and he was nice. And I giggled to myself and my initial instinct was to make fun of her choice a little bit. But I thought about it. I'm like, well, no, good for you. Good for you, girl. Good for you, Megan. And, and you've you've been an influence in her life from the beginning, is that right? Yes, yes. And you've been straight with her from the beginning, is that right? I wouldn't say from the beginning. Um, there was a lot of anger in but me. But you haven't been manipulative and contradictory and all that, right? No, not at all. No, I, I've always been as honest as I possibly could. And so, do you see where this leads? This is what I'm pointing out to you. And and I'm trying mightily to try and get you what you want in life. You want a great woman, right? Absolutely. Right. So with your niece, you were straight and honest with her, and that has conditioned her to expect straightness and honesty from a man, and so the boy she's dating is straight and honest, right? Yes. I hope they last. Right. But do you see why I'm telling you to be straight and honest and not manipulative? I, I so do. So that you can show up like this guy does to your niece? I do. My Okay. I, I, I hear the argument. I have a small disagreement, and that is that uh, the majority of women um, were not raised the way my niece was. And so the majority of women are trained to respond to the manipulativeness that you, I oh display. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I have to say this again. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. I want you to punch yourself in the in the dick because you're not... <laughs> You're not listening with your ears. Your your dick is like snaking up, forking out, and jamming itself in your ear holes. Dick punch right now. Um, would you tell your niece to reject the man, or the boy that she loves, because not a lot of boys are raised in that way? No, I wouldn't. Right. But if my but if my niece weren't raised this way, 
And if she were attracted to these types of men, I wouldn't have the ability to make her not be attracted to those men like she would be. Okay, whether so I forget this theoretical if your niece was a different human being. Forget that. You're just bullshitting me here. You're, you're not getting the most important thing for your life's happiness in the future. Look, you're so scared of the passage of time, my friend, that you're willing to lower your standards for the pretense of love, which is manipulating low-quality women, right? You're like, oh, God, I'm so, I'm so hungry, and I'm not, I don't know when I'm going to eat again, so whatever's left on the buffet, I'm grabbing. The argument your niece, your look, the, 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 the number of boys who are decent and honest as teenagers is not huge, right? It's but your niece, because she was raised in a decent and honest way, has now managed to find this decent and honest guy who I can guarantee you did not come up and say, hey, are you laughing at my music? No, it's funny to imagine him doing that. It is. It's sad. It's But this is what you're doing, which means that you're keeping women who were raised like your niece far out of your life. That's what I'm pointing out. And you say, oh, well, but they're rare. And it's like, but this is my whole point. Stop driving them away and then complaining that they're rare. I will think about that. I'll definitely meditate on that. I'll listen to this more than once. I have this vision of... Uh, taking someone younger and we'll grow together. That's just how I see it right now. You know, there's, um, we make mistakes when we're in a hurry. Yeah, I agree. When there's that. urgency, we tend to cut corners, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you do any work with software, but there's estimates that say it's 10 to 20 times harder to fix design problems down the road than it is to fix them in the design stage, right? Right. I feel and people like are like, oh, we got to make the sale. We got we got a book. We got a bill. We got to right. I went through all of this shit for years in business. And the reality is it's like, pay me now, or pay me later. Pay me a dollar now, or pay me $10 later. But when you feel that sense of urgency about very important life decisions, that is a time where you need to sit down and plan really well. You know, if you're if you can't find your passport and you got to leave to the airport, there's no point going through the basement and looking in the like you've got to sit and think, oh, God, where did I last have it? Where did I least use it? Where was my last trip? Where would I have put it? Right. You've got to think and not just run around like a chicken with your head cut off when you're in a hurry and things are important. Right. That's when you really need to think. So that you can get what you want. Right. Your window is tight because you, ideally, statistically, you want a woman who's highly educated, who is has waited to get married, who doesn't have a kid, who doesn't have exes, who doesn't have crap, who's not wildly apart in age, right? So, but who's not older than you because you can't meet someone who's 40. You can't meet a woman who's 40 and then hope to have kids when she's 43. I mean, that's, yeah, you might as well wait for the second coming, right? Yeah, it's not going to work so, yeah, so you, you're going to have to try and find a woman who's 34 uh, and meet her and, and cultivate that. and so. But, but trust me, she thinks that men like you are rare and you think that women like her are rare, so you've got to have the mating call called honesty. I mean, how the hell do the fucking crickets find each other? Brr, 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 until it sounds like your brain is getting 
some sort of a Credence Clearwater Revival washboard thing going on 24-7, right? How do the frogs find each other? Ribbit. Right? That's how they... Why do birds sing so prettily? So they can fuck, right? They're like rock stars. Um, and so, you know, the Freddie Mercury mating call is, it's so easy. So this is... You've got to have a mating call because it's hard to find the right person, right? And so you're like, well, I've got to just cast my net as wide as possible. And I got to understand hypergamy and I got to understand how women work so I can get a woman, right? Not just any woman. Um, it's like I keep saying, I have this vision of growing together with her. Agreed, agreed. Okay, so, so you're going to need to find a woman who's either starting to wake up like you are or who is capable of waking up, right? Right, capable of waking up but hasn't thought about these things. Right, but right now you are priming women and you are trying to get women to respond to you lying. How on earth is that going to get you a woman who wants to grow into truth with you? If, if you approach a woman directly and honestly and openly and sincerely, a lot of shallow idiot women will not be turned on. Good. Because that is quicksand which regurgitates nothing but the bones of divorced men. So, Can if you approach a woman directly and honestly and openly, straightforward, if she's intrigued by that, then you are on fertile ground. It's like that old that joke about the drunk, right? Guy comes out of a bar and there's a a drunk guy looking around where the the lamp is, right? The the street lamp. And the guy's like, I can't find my car keys. This joke worked when drunk driving was more acceptable, so nobody's recommending yes. that, right? Right. Yes. So any guy's like, oh, you know, it's like, oh, I'll help you. I'll help you if you they look around cockies, look around for cockies, right? Can't find them. Guy says, So what this is where you drop them? And he's like, No, I dropped them at the end of the street. It's like, well, why are you looking here then? Because this is where the light is. Yes, right? I'm familiar right. with that, Joe. I am. Yeah, so you got to change your filter for women. You want a woman who's intrigued by honesty, not a woman who's intrigued by bullshit. You know, you don't want to get on a train and then say, I'm going to try and turn it around. <laughs> you want to get on a train that's heading the right way and then don't try and turn it around because you can't turn around a train any more than you can make someone who's really intrigued and turned on by lying. You know, somebody who only wants oral sex from forked tongue, <laughs> right? You, you can't get a woman who's really turned on by lying to want to follow you into truth porn, <laughs> if that makes any sense. It's, it's, I hear the argument. I definitely hear it. I definitely do. I will think about it. I'll listen to this more Good. than once. That's, uh, that's, that's all I ask. Trying to get yeah. your, your penis what it wants, which is to make more penises. Anyway. <laughs> yes. So, all right. Well, th thanks, man. Will you let us know how it goes? I will. And like I said, you were the person who started me on all of this. And so I will always have great respect for you because whatever goodness my future has was started by you. It was started by your message. Well, 
I hugely appreciate that. And let me also say, great call. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate, uh, uh, I appreciate you staying in the call. I, I appreciate you letting me be annoying. Uh, I appreciate uh, your openness. I appreciate your receptivity. Uh, I appreciate your honesty. Uh, and I just hugely respect you for, for the call. I mean, I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. That means a lot. All right. Thanks, everyone, so much. Look at that. We almost made it to midnight, but not tonight. Uh, so sorry for those who are bumped. Um, please remember to help out the show at freedomainradio.com slash donate. This is the kind of work that we're doing, helping people to break through the cultural barriers to a rational, peaceful, and free world that's uh, just over the horizon. <laughs> Click your heels three times, blink, and we'll be there. So, yeah, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Please, please, please go and uh, subscribe or, or donate. We also take Bitcoin and Donkey Coin, Dogecoin, and other uh, whatever you've got. If you don't have any money, um, please uh, share and and uh, help other people get exposed to philosophy. Um, I hugely uh, appreciate it, and um, I will talk to you guys soon. Have yourself a wonderful, wonderful night.